0: so to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com.
1: What do you like listen to? Um... <laughs> <it>. Chart
2: music.
3: <laughs> <laughs> Chart music. Praise youngsters, and welcome to the latest episode of Chart Music, the podcast that pulls the bra of intelligence out of the dog's arse that is a random episode of Top of the Pops. I'm your host, and all right, I'm not even going to give you my name because it doesn't fucking matter, Before I am worthless in comparison to Neil Kulkane. <laughs> Hello there, Al.
4: And Taylor Parks.
5: That's the spirit.
4: <laughs> How are we, Ducks? And um- I'm terrified because it's you, you remember uh, I mentioned that big weekend in Coventry BBC Music oh, yes. Big Weekend it's fucking it's this fucking weekend oh, so no. in 2 days like literally down the road um, in audible distance from me Liam Gallagher is playing which was bad enough oh. but i have just I've, oh. I've had a look at the bill um Stereophonics um oh. and Nigel fucking Kennedy and, I oh, think the, the, no. <laughs> and the crowning turd in this kind of blocked U-bend of a bill is uh, the return of Snow Patrol. So um, Oh, <laughs> thank God. I'm just sealing myself off for the weekend. That's disgusting. It is disgraceful. I mean, the Luftwaffe did enough damage to our city. Surely we've suffered enough. I mean, Nigel Kennedy must be thinking, well, I'm not going to be the biggest cunt on this bill. I, I, <laughs> I don't know how to feel about that. Well, before him is uh, the Strictly Come Dancing dancers with the BBC Orchestra, but Why? I don't think I don't think it will feature any of the members who've played pissed up on versions of Top of the Pops. Oh that we've seen, so man, that's a that shame. would be fucking mint if it that was. Would be amazing.
3: <sighs> Taylor, anything popping interesting happening in your life? Come on. Uh,
5: no, think my, vo- my voice is shot because um, I've got uh, something wrong in my chest, pulled a muscle oh. in my back. It's all just uh, you know, just the usual. Um, I was back up in the West Midlands uh, recently um, oh. enjoying this beautiful heatwave uh, although it's weird seeing places like Cradley Heath in bright sunshine. <laughs> it's not right. Yeah. It, everything no. looks right. It's like seeing um, Tony Iommi in a cow print onesie. It's just it's <laughs> not how things are meant to be but did manage to get the beautiful Chiltern line from Birmingham Moor Street to London Marylebone through the delightful county of warwick's through the Vale of red horse um and uh so the fact that i'm fucking falling to pieces uh (laughs) managed to put to the back of my mind
4: the Vale of arden you see warwickshire is a beautiful county um that coventry should still be part of we've been cast out into the west midlands but as far as i'm concerned
5: do you not think the amputation of brum and cove from warwickshire is partly what has made it such a beautiful county (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
4: there was talk about five years ago of us just becoming a suburb of Birmingham basically Mm, which I bitterly uh bitterly resent you know Shakespeare came to Coventry Coventry is part of Warwickshire and it should remain so he wouldn't come to fucking Coventry this weekend, though, would he? No, he fucking wouldn't. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, it's a useful magnet for every twat in Coventry to go to the party. Oh, it weekend. is, isn't it? I thought it was a kind of free thing, but it turns out it's actually 30 bloody quid to get into this thing. Jesus. So these fools are going to pay to see this shit fest. What's worse than that is, is that in a club in town called The Empire that is kind of lad rock central for Coventry. Um, mm. They've got an after-show party with a tribute band to mm. Noel Gallagher's High Flying Birds. Oh, shit in hell. <laughs> Called Noel, N-O-A-L, Gallagher's something or other. Um, and they've also got Paul Gallagher, as ever, doing a DJ set. Um, <sighs> you know, th- th- this shit needs eradicate from Coventry, not encouraging, so... Um, <sighs> Yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to seal myself off. Once I've recorded this, I'm going to lock all the doors, close all the curtains and just seal myself off on the weekend and try and ignore it. Oh, protect and survive, Neil. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah.
3: So it's that time when we give a shout out to the people who have laid their money down for chart music of late. And those people are Jack Man, Andrew Holmes and no fucker else. Oh, <laughs> man. We need to think of new ways to squeeze some dollar out of the pop Craze Youngsters charts.
5: It's like when uh, an indie record goes in the charts and I'm goes, oh, yes. it's gone in at number 17. But no, that's yeah. everyone who's bought it and is ever <laughs> going to.
3: So this week's episode, pop Craze Youngsters, plonks us right in the middle of the 80s as we go back nearly 34 years to August the 9th. 1984. Oh, we've we've been we've been to 1984. Uh, I think this is the second time now, isn't it? Wow. It is. Yeah, we did we did it really early, didn't we, Taylor? Your first one. Yeah, yeah. yeah and we, we didn't like it then, but this this might be a bit different.
5: Yeah, this is a lot better. Um, you do get a sense though; it is a funny year, uh, and there's these um, two great watersheds coming up in '85. Mm. There's Live Aid. And there's the change from the old two-colour mechanical BBC Globe to the cow, yeah. the computer-originated yes. world. Um, both of which happened in the sort of early to mid-85, and nothing was ever the same again. Um, no, it wasn't. So in part, there seems to be this... Uh, sort of stasis with a new pop aristocracy like the old Mm. dinosaur bands but sort of self-consciously shallow but at the same time yeah pop is already breaking up and the pieces are drifting apart and then yeah after Live Aid hits the following summer there's like a portcullis comes down or the Berlin Wall goes up and everything on this side is popular entertainment and everything this side is cult and the separation Mm. is almost absolute Mm. Very little communication between the mainstream and the non-mainstream for several years, and everyone suffers.
3: Anything to add on that, Neil? Oh, God, no. Okay. (laughs) In the news this week, well, Daley Thompson is currently killing it in the decathlon at the Los Angeles Olympics. Richard Burton has been buried in Switzerland uh, after he's died, obviously. Hopefully. (laughs) Walter Mondale surges in the opinion polls for the forthcoming presidential election. The trial of John DeLorean for drug trafficking begins in Los Angeles. Melchester Rovers announced that Jeffrey Boycott is about to come their new chairman. But the big news this week is that Tracy Ullman has invited Frank Both to black up and pretend to be a malware for her next video <laughs> he, he turned that down
5: do you have any context for that no because <laughs> <laughs> it's no. ringing a very vague bell a very distant mm. bell but i'd love to know the full story
4: i've got a feeling boff might have blacked up before that you know Do you reckon? Why can I see it? He he whited up quite a bit, didn't
3: he, round about this time?
4: (laughs) No, I'm sure. um, Why have I got an image of of Frank Boff blacked up in my head? I mean, unless you... Because you're a racist, Neil. (laughs) I'm sure I can just see that. It it must have been on something awful. It must have been on like Russ Abbott or something. (laughs) But it's in my head, I can see it. Okay, po- if any pop-crazy
3: youngsters out there can recall Frank Boff blacking up for something, anything, uh, please let us know on, on Facebook or on Twitter. The cover of The Enemy this week, Mike Scott of The Waterboys. On the cover of Smash Hits, Simon LeBon. The number one LP is That's What I Call Music 3. Legend by Bob Marley and the well is at number two. And Diamond Life by Sade is at number three. Over in America, the number one single is When Doves Cry by Prince, and the number one LP is Purple Rain by Prince. Oh, he's smashing it in America. Mm -hmm. Even though, you know, he's been slighted by Noel Edmonds, he's still carried on manfully.
4: (laughs) So, chaps, what were we doing in August of 1984? I was on my bike. I was just on my bike almost constantly. Um, oh i i never got a bike in a sense i always inherited ones that my sister didn't use really. oh no yeah well no they weren't girls bikes once she'd finished with her budgie i got her budgie and then she had a striker so i got the striker after that so round Ooh. about now was when i finally got um her grifter um Ooh. which was a fantastic bike um you know yeah. um, if that landed on your head which it frequently did if you went arse over to over the over the handlebars it mm. hurt um so now when i when i see you know you know those l- lads you see these days doing massive wheelies everywhere and just yeah. rolling down going down the street doing a wheelie all the way down the street that's nothing because those bikes are so light doing a wheelie a yeah. grifter was yeah. a big big deal so i just remember it, it days of the, of the weekend anyway would just you just go out in the morning on your grifter and you'd just be out all day and, and practice not all night but till about 7, 8 and all you'd say to your yeah. parents all I'd say to my parents leaving was I'm off out alright yeah. bye and that was it um, yeah. so just yes a lot of riding around on my bike going to a shop in Coughtown Centre called Inter Shop which called itself the future of shop which was basically wow. it was basically it was empty <laughs> it was it, it was, was right bas- about
5: the future of language at least
4: <laughs> yes yes <laughs> But it was just a load of uh, basically market stalls in a building. But um, right. there was a, there was an off licence in the middle of it, um, run by a seat right. guy. and he would basically sell booze to. I mean, he'd sell it sell it to a dog if he could have done. He, he <laughs> it would sell booze to anybody. So me, twelve going on thirteen, that was a place we used to go um, to buy you know four cans of Yaga Lager or something, take yes. them at the park and be violently sick on. I also started smoking this Ooh. year. Um, Good lord! J- yeah, it's quite young, but I started by picking up half-finished ones off the floor. Um nice. I, and you could buy singles back then. But I, I, I seem to recall the first pack I bought was a ten-pack of JPS because JPS yeah. had the cool black boxes. Yes. so yeah. I was sort of I was sort of pre-teen um, trying to be a teenager. man. Ra- Rally Grifter
3: and John Player Fags, man,
4: all from Nottingham. Oh, of course, the Nottingham yeah. collection.
3: Yes. And if you ever went to Boots to get some johnnies to, uh, you know, fill with water and throw at your mates in the shopping precinct. Hmm. Again, Nottingham. (laughs) Nottingham just had it all for the youth, didn't it?
5: It's quite nice to start smoking by picking up butts off the floor because then it means when you're old, you come full circle.
3: Yes, exactly. Well,
4: you could salvage dog ends anyway. I mean, uh, you know, on top deck of buses. Um, yeah. Underneath the stubber on the back of every seat, you could you could find enough to keep you going, I guess. Yeah, if you're chatty as fog,
3: <laughs> I suppose. I mean, before before we bring Taylor into this, the question needs to be asked, Neil, what crisps were rocking New World in 1984? Oh,
4: because you did write this amazing article on your uh, blog about the Taylor. Sorry, I wrote a massive piece about crisps on my blog, which immediately picked up thousands of hits, far more than my poultry music writing does. So mm. um, clearly, you know, national priorities are towards crisps. I think 84, much like there was innovation... In the world of soft drinks, because I'm fairly sure Quattro came out in 84. Yes. Um, I think in 84, we were seeing things like Bits of Pizza and yeah. things like that. Innovations, which I've got to say, I resisted. My, my favourite bag of 84 was um, Nibbits Potato Wheels Mexican flavour. A um, right. uh, bit obscure, but a fantastic, fantastic crisp. Um, Um, And what is the flavour of Mexico? Well, this is it. It was kind of vaguely paprika-ish, I guess, but I didn't know that. I I like the fact it was called Mexican flavour. It wasn't called um, Mexican spice flavour, but just Mexican flavour, which was was nice. Yeah, so nibbits Mexican potato. Have you ever met any Mexican people? I haven't. No, I haven't. What you're about to ask. Oh, right. I mean, if you did, would you be tempted to lick them to see if they tasted like these crisps? (laughs) i suspect that i suspect they wouldn't um because mm. it was it was there was something deliciously um what's the word yeah taylor mentions cradley heath earlier they were made mm. on some industrial estate in cradley heath so uh, there was a nice sort of cross-contaminated chemically vibe to them um, excellent which was nice so if a mexican person did taste like that i'd, I'd send them immediately to a and e i think well me
3: i'd just left school it was a very poignant time because uh not so much leaving school but i was Glad to be shot at that fucking dump. But um, my mates were kind of like starting to drift off into whatever work they could get. Uh, I remember one of my mates, Sisson, we were all hanging around on the shopping precinct as was our want at the time. And he came up, pleased us punch and kind of like giving it the large one because he just got a YTS somewhere and he spent all night bragging on about the 25 whole pounds a week he was going to get and what he was going to buy with it. And... Uh, my other mate, yeah, he got a job uh, through his dad, I believe, through his dad at the post office. So uh, he consequently spunked all his money every week on vinyl, which was good because, mm. you know, he got to tape a lot of shit for me. It was really funny, though, because for, for people like me, the mid-80s, because there wasn't much work about, it, it basically meant you got an extended childhood. Mm. You could spend an extra few years finding other people who were in the same boat as you and just fucking about. Mm. Um so yeah that was great but uh, obviously the the downside to that was it was kind of like the beginning of I believe it was the beginning of the uh, lad culture of the 90s. Mm. Um but the other um the other big thing or oh, well there was two other big things there was the uh, the opening of the food court in the in the local shopping center which was I think the most continental thing to ever happen yeah. to Nottingham because all of a sudden you could get all this food from all over the world. As long as it fitted into a jacket potato,
4: <laughs> that's quite ahead of its time, actually. Food courts weren't very common back then.
3: No, no, it really was. Always ahead of the game, Vicky Center. <laughs> when
5: did the Murat Food Centre open its doors?
3: Oh God, yeah, I think that's quite a recent development. If you if you're not aware of the Murat Food Centre, they made their own advert um, and put it on YouTube, and it is it, it's basically the high mat of uh, of a food store adverts, isn't it? It kind of like goes on for 15 minutes with long pauses and really slow sweep of a crisp aisle with this bloke who bursts in every now and again to say, international selection of cakes and biscuits.
5: Yeah, whenever I'm uh, distressed and disorientated by the the uh, fast pace of modern living, I'll flip on the, the Murat Food Centre advert and just... Uh, recalibrate
3: but the other big development in my life at this time is that me and my mates started going out on Saturday nights into town yeah. not out of my choice we we started going to a disco bar <laughs> called Ziggy's which used to be across the road from the train station and we, we'd been going there for about six weeks um my grandpa collared me and took me to one side and he said uh, yeah I've heard I've heard from my mates because he, he lived nearby heard from my mates that you you got to you got to uh, that Ziggy's and I go yeah, so, uh, and, uh, you know, it's full of ginger beers, don't you? And I said, no. He says, it is. That's what it is. It said, no, it isn't, Grandpa. There's, there's women there, for God's sake. <laughs> yeah, me and my mates have been going to a gay bar trying to pull <laughs> for six weeks in a row. And uh, it was on the seventh week, uh, my mate's brother tagged along. And uh, he said he was going to the toilets and uh, he he was in there for quite a while (laughs) and uh, he kind of like stormed out and said, drink up, we're going. And we were like, why? He says, oh, I'll tell you later. (laughs) But basically what happened was that he got debagged in the toilets by these two blokes. And uh, as we were leaving, I kind of like took one look back and they were standing there at the bar, taking it in turns to sniff his pants.
1: (laughs)
4: Yeah. That was our Saturday nights. That's 1984, folks. I think every
5: man in the world, uh, every straight man in the world should be made to go to a gay bar a few, at least a few times just to understand what the world is like for women every day. Yeah.
3: <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because, yeah, well, the thing was, I, I spent a lot of time going to, ended up in gay bars in uh, in London um, because, it, mm. because it was like... Um, You know, I'm going out, I'm going to enjoy myself. The pressure's off. And, you know, used to have a really good time. And then, you know, all of a sudden I'd be standing at the bar and I I end up chatting to a bloke and he's there and we're getting on, we're talking about football and all this kind of stuff. And then all of a sudden he leans over and says, well, why don't you come back in my car and I'll fuck you up the arse. (laughs) And and then you go, oh yeah, gay bar. (laughs) I forgot for a minute. Could do. (laughs) Fancy that.
5: Yeah. I used to like it because it's tremendously good for the ego.
3: Yeah. At
5: least when you're a young man.
3: Yes. There was a a man bar that opened up in Nottingham a few years ago called The Hole, which I thought was just the fucking most best to the point name for a gay bar ever. And I was just really upset they didn't open a lesbian bar next door called The Gash. (laughs) Come on, let's drink a beer and we'll go to The Gash for one. So, what was on telly this day? Well, BBC One starts the day with Olympic grandstand, then the fifth test between England and the West Indies at the Oval, then News Afternoon, an Olympic report with David Icke, Postman Pat, then more cricket, followed by play school, Huckleberry Finn and his friends, John Craven's news round, then more Olympics, then the evening news, regional news in your area, and the beginning of the final day of the decathlon and Zola Budd's first heat in the 3,000 metres before she makes Mary Decker cry like a big fucking Jesse. Oh, that wasn't that the most beautiful moment of that Olympics?
4: It was a great Olympics that year. I remember watching an awful lot of it. Um, it I really was. was the first one that really registered with me. Yeah, because um, it was the, it was the Olympics of kind of Carl Lewis and people like that, wasn't it? and Solar yes. you know, Bud, Bud was a was a big deal at the time. Daley Thompson was a massive deal at the time. Yes. Um, everyone playing Daley Thompson's decathlon on the uh, ZX. Special. Yes. And by the way, if you're playing that out there, people, don't forget use a golf ball on the Z and X keys to build up your speed. Yeah,
3: I remember spending a lot of my time at that age either furiously masturbating or playing <laughs> Daley Thompson's decathlon, which was which was the same thing, really, wasn't it?
1: Yeah. <laughs>
5: Very similar technique. Did you use a golf ball? <laughs> the
3: 1984 Olympics was so good because it had, you know, decent commentators and not middle-class twats yucking it up and and, and being fucking jollily patriotic. Mm, I fucking mm. hate that about oh, the Olympics yeah. mm-hmm. nowadays. You just want to see the best. You know, you don't give a shit that that, that Cole Lewis didn't come from fucking
4: Leicester or anything like that. It's just like, oh, fucking hell, look how fast he is. It's become totally parochial now. It's all about the English competitors. And really, yeah, Yeah. it's not fair even to the English competitors because, you know, they're they're individuals. They're not necessarily doing it for fucking Team GB. That's a phrase I never want to hear again. No, fuck (laughs) that shit. Team
3: GB belongs in it's a knockout. Yeah. End of.
5: Yeah, it's it's pretty embarrassing being in a country that tries to be patriotic with a a phrase that could not be more Americanized.
3: Yes, mm. Mm. you know what mm. I mean. Yeah, mm. it's also yeah. that
5: kind of Olympics presentation is imported from America as well because they was they were doing it for for years. You know, there'd mm. be some yeah. guy from Poland, you know, leaping forty feet. Um, they're just not interested. They're just uh, no, showing yeah. some American guy who fell over, dusting his knees off, you
3: know. <laughs> we're East Germany now, aren't we? Yeah. With that, that kind of like little insular country that uh, punches way above its weight in Olympics and, and simply because they've ploughed loads of money into it.
4: But, I mean, that said, right, the single moment, of national pride that I think I've ever felt, and you're gonna re- you're gonna hate me for this, but you know, in the 2012 Olympics, I'm not on about the opening ceremony. I'm on about no. It was on the opening ceremony, but the moment when Team G fucking B came out, and I think it was mm. Bowie, wasn't it? Heroes. I felt. Yeah. I've got to admit, I felt a small frisson of not. Could I call it national pride? The hair stood up on my arms a little bit. I think that's about sense of place. Work. Yeah, yeah, I think so. But mm. but. Uh, it, it's if if you can watch Olympics and stuff like that on Bloom and because Sports, they don't do any of that team yeah. shit. It's much better. What yeah, I loved the definitely. most
5: about the Olympics opening ceremony was that the climax was the last bit of Dark Side of the Moon. Um, yeah, the lines <laughs> uh, uh, and, uh, all you, uh, and all that you and uh, all and everything under the sun is in tune, but the sun is eclipsed by the moon the most sensationalistically negative lines ever written <laughs> in a rock song. Apocalyptically <laughs> negative. Um, that was what we were all uh, all supposed to stand up and whoop to. <laughs> that gave me a really nice sort of perverted glee.
3: BBC Two kicks off with some red hot open university action, then half an hour of pages from CFAX, then Animal Magic, Jackanore, Why Don't You... Play school, more pages from CFAX, half an hour of the cricket, then it's over to DFID for the Royal Nationalised Steadford of Wales, more CFAX, more cricket, the news, and then they pile into a repeat of monkey called Monsters Can Be People Too. Apparently, Monkey's been getting on everyone's tits and he gets sent home in disgrace. <laughs> then there's a series about maternity services called Birthright, and they've just started the time of your life where Noel Edmonds recreates September of 1968, which was a very special time for Colonel John Blashford Schnell.
4: I don't remember that show at all, you know. I saw the little thing no. before, before Top of the Pops for and I do, do not remember it at
3: all. No. No, you, you, you're you not missing it. It's just a just a really crappy version of This Is Your Life yeah, with, yeah. A, with a lot less research needed.
5: By the way, uh, asterisk, Dovid.
3: Is it Do- Dovid? Yeah.
5: I, I believe so, yeah. But it's only Wales.
3: Yeah. <laughs> ITV has screened Good Morning Britain, the movie-length pilot for Ironside, the Grumbleweeds radio show. That's in the morning, That is. that is. This is supposed to be kids' TV time, during the summer holidays fuck's sake, Mooncat The Sullivans, News at One Crown Court, The Shillingbury Tales, Oberon War at Home, for fuck's sake (laughs) The Moomins The Kids Tomorrow Will Knock Off Video and Chips, then Star Strider, followed by Crossroads Regional News in Your Area Treasure Island, and they're about to run the film version of the David Janssen Private Eye Show Harry O. Channel 4 has started with blockbusters, followed by the school's programme Start Here, then a walk through Lime Regis with an author in Robinson Country, where they might bump into Gary Davis, who is hosting the Radio 1 Roadshow today. Today's history examines the office of president in America, and they're currently halfway through Channel 4 News. Before we move on, we we must discuss Monkey a bit more, because that was the greatest fucking television programme ever at that time, wasn't it?
4: Fantastic show. Um, and, and just every episode contained at least one moment that just just blew my mind. Now I remember an yeah. episode where he got eaten and he ended up in a stomach and then yes. kicking hell out of it to get puked up. Things like yeah. that when you were a kid. British television simply didn't provide things like that. No. Um so it was an essential, essential uh, part of the week monkey.
3: Yeah, I mean the first episode of it he, he got he, he he got into deep shit, didn't he? Because he, he flew for ages on his cloud after going whoosh, Mm-hmm. and uh, he, he ended up by this pillar and uh, he, he thought oh I'll have a piss up it it, it, it turned out to be one of Buddha's fingers <laughs> Buddhism's kind of like seen as the cool religion uh, particularly amongst pop stars and this is why, monkey <laughs> you know if, if Christianity or Islam had had, had their own version of monkey, uh, I I think we'd be more open to them nowadays
4: you're right, there's no martial arts in Christianity is there?
3: Yeah, fucking rubbish <laughs> just banging on about fucking god and, and stuff. I mean, someone get, you know, I mean there's a lot of violence, but it's not good violence, is it?
4: Well, it's religious... not the kind
3: of violence you can set to some kind of like
4: frenetic jazz funk. Yeah, and al- and also, sorry, uh, the the visions of hell in uh, Christianity and Islam. Yeah. Um, just inferior, I've got to say, to to Eastern religions at the time, yeah, uh, eighty four probably. I was obsessively reading my parents' nutty old religious books that they yeah. never read, but um, I was reading them because their visions of hell were unbelievable. Because yeah. you, you just get these incredible punishments for the slightest thing, like. If you in if as a Hindu apparently if you invite somebody to your house right and they've come along mm. and within an hour you're kind of wondering if they're going to go and you kind of want them out the door <laughs> yeah. that means that um you will end up um it's it's like floating on a planet um a, a liquid planet made of piss shit spunk um no. fingernails excrement it's oh, just disgusting sandwiches made by the stranglers and and it's not like a lake lake of bloody fire so what but a lake of all yeah. of that horrible shit um, and you will float there you know for a billion billion years and that's for looking at somebody like you wish they were leaving the house yeah, looking of at your watch <laughs> that's it so, <laughs> that's you know, terrible not, man it is terrible because I, I am like that and I was like that at, in 84 actually I, I had friends don't get me wrong But I was that weird friend who, if you come round within 20 minutes, I would say something like, could you go now, please? I'm bored. I want to be on my own. Um, (laughs) So, so, you know. Yeah, and look what happened. (laughs)
3: Exactly.
4: Exactly. But, yeah, I've got that future headed for me. Yeah, I mean, look, man, we're we're, we're in 2018,
3: man. This is a planet of shit and spunk and piss.
4: (laughs) It was the ludicrous description that, that struck me. It's all ancient Sanskrit tra- translated, and it's, it's childish. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It, it's, like-
5: it's like when kids tell you like tall stories, and they're just making it up, and it's whatever yeah. strikes their imagination yeah, yeah. as as exciting. And yeah. it doesn't matter if it's not plausible. You just go, yeah, that's it. Yeah. You remember when nuclear war was the big uh, mm-hmm. yeah. thing that everyone was obsessed with? And I was in the school library and there was a kid looking through a textbook and it had a picture of a nuclear explosion in it. And he pointed out and he said, do you know how hot that is? And I said, <laughs> no. And he said, it's as hot as 10 million suns.
1: I said, well,
5: oh, right. Okay. Kids are
3: great. I mean, I don't want to go all that's life there, but I was talking to my niece the other day and we were at the dinner table and she just turned up to me and says, I know what the Queen's like. And I said, go on then. I said, but where does the Queen live? She said, oh, she lives in the bushes. <laughs> and I said, uh, uh, what does she eat then? Uh, and she just went, glass and dogs. <laughs> and then I said, what, what does she do then? What does she, what's, what, what does she do in the day then? And she just went, oh, she, she goes on the beach and pees in people's drinks when they're not looking. <laughs> and it's just like, oh, don't grow up. Please don't grow up. <laughs> Going back to Monkey, I mean, you know, we've d- discussed before, uh, particularly Simon, about the um, the disturbing effect that Boy George had on a on a boy's sexuality. But I contend that um, we'd already had that with Tripitaka, mm, mm. a thousand times more
4: confusing to to young lads
3: than Boy still, George
4: ever was. Still confusing to me, to be honest with
3: you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, well, you you're uh, you're a, a boy, but. Uh, you got the voice of a woman, and and, and crucially, um, you looked at the actor's name, and you 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 just went, well, that could be out. Really, uh-huh. that could be either gender. Yeah, but oh, I kind of fancy you.
4: Oh, without a doubt, She'd be But sure. then
3: I thought, no, it must be a boy because you know Pigsy would have had a go. <laughs> <laughs>
4: No, I want I really want to find somewhere that repeats monkey because it'll be out there somewhere. And I don't The internet. Mean, no, that doesn't you count. Want... Uh, that no, doesn't, it doesn't count. Does it? I wanna be flicking through channels and find it. Like the other day, right? I was flicking um on my Skybox and um I found a channel called Forces TV, right? Yes. Which is which is for the armed forces, I guess. Mm. Um so it's full of full of um quite Brexity stuff during the day, but then uh, late at night they're showing things like Starsky and Hutch yeah um, and stuff like that so yeah, i want a moment like Boko as well yeah yeah i want to stumble across monkey one day yeah just get it on now six o'clock bbc two <laughs> all Whoa.
3: right then pop Craigs youngsters it's time to go way back to august of 1984 don't forget we may cope down your favorite band or artist but we never forget They've been on Top of the Pops more than we have. ...time of his
0: life, with the help of Noel Edmonds, Mary Hopkin, and Mr. Alf Garnett. That's except for viewers in Northern Ireland, where there are some Olympic echoes of times gone by with MacArthur's Marathon. On BBC One, nothing but the very latest winners in Top of the Pops...
2: Street credible Blancmange and beach credible Tracy Ullman. Here's sunglasses. <laughs>
3: this episode are John Peel and Richard Skinner. The latter is on Radio 1 right now, and the former comes on afterwards at 10 o'clock. Before we go into the show, this episode has been salvaged off a torrent site, and uh, fucking hell, that BBC eye dent, it's a bit Mm. gorgeous, isn't it?
4: Oh, the Olympic one, yeah. Very nice indeed.
3: Yeah, it's essentially the Olympic rings, which they certainly couldn't do nowadays, uh, and the the top middle ring is a bit larger and that's where they've put the rotating globe. Oh, <laughs> fucking hell, man.
5: It's probably Beautiful. built out of plywood and someone had it in their garden for like 20 yeah. years until the rain washed it away.
4: It was such a big thing, the Olympics. And I think down to, you know, you mentioned Zola Budd. Um You know, partly down mm. to her, because it was a political choice whether you supported her or not, really. Um, yes. I remember our family certainly didn't.
3: Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That was—I remember—Spike um, Milligan was uh, interviewed uh, on a running track with massive shorts, saying he was he was training for uh, British citizenship. <laughs> Skinner in a horrific checkerboard Hawaiian cut shirt that he's tucked into some white trousers, and Peel in a slightly less rank white shirt with diagonal black stripes tucked into his jeans with a sheriff's badge stand at the top of some steps surrounded by zoo chaff. Peel sarcastically invites us to indulge in the hardest street sounds around, while Skinner tempts us with street credible blamange, and the first act beats credible Tracy Ullman with sunglasses. We need to talk first about the uh, this particular partnership. It's they do look like a couple of old dads. Uh, standing at the side of a kids' football game.
4: Well, I'm glad you mentioned Skinner's shirt because mm. it surely is the most revolting brown shirt since Coff City's infamous 1978 away strip. It's fucking ghastly. The
3: 80s have, have, have kicked in properly here, haven't they? they have. But it's very futuristic as well, man, because it's very reminiscent of the really ranked shirts that were popping up in the late 80s and early 90s.
4: Mm. On, on your Bruno Brookses and the like. Yeah. Yeah. Peel yeah. for me, this episode, um, I mean, we've discussed before John Peel's kind of piss-takey presence on top of the pop. Yes. And how, you know, for grown-ups it was wonderful, for, for, for kids it was a bit more irritating. For me, you know, even as a grown-up who now should be amenable to what he's saying, he, he kind of crosses over in this episode into just outright contempt, I think, for, for, mm. for the music that he's presented. And I didn't like it. Even as a grown-up, I didn't like it. And I know mm. that as a, as a kid watching this, uh, his constant... Um, sniping and it's not actually well delivered sniping he does a few fuck ups um, as the episode mm. goes on um, would have really really bugged the hell out of me um, just, just yeah. why are you there man if you don't like it you know yeah Taylor
3: have you uh, have you been in, on a peel episode yet no and it's Ooh, weird. Wow. It,
5: it's weird how it's become sort of fashionable or at least you know, commonplace, to slag peel off a bit these days, which probably is mm. largely in response to his canonisation, which is mm. itself quite sickly and hypocritical. And in a lot of ways, selling mm. short what he really did achieve. But it's yes. weird, because I mm. can remember the days when I'd say I wasn't a big fan, despite everything, I wasn't a big fan of his TV and radio persona, despite mm. appreciating and listening to his show. Um, People would look at me, you know, like I'd just called their dad a hoe. Um, (laughs) But I didn't like that sort of chuntering, like mock grumpy, trivially mm. minded amiability. I didn't like the harmlessness and mateyness of it. And the way he'd just ramble on like a like an old station master talking to his cat, you know. <laughs> and, and when he tried to be funny, he wasn't that funny, so when he was snooty about something, it seemed a bit dickish. Uh, it never bothered me a lot, for the obvious reason that there's never been such a committed, eclectic, receptive and uh, and mm. broad-minded mm. DJ on British radio. Um, and, yeah. you know, he was all you had at the time, the yes press mm. and John Peel. And it was not good... That there was one man who was the, the gatekeeper of all non-popular mm. music in Britain, but it was still better than No Filter at all. Um, and it is a disgrace the way it's been rewritten since he died, that he was some sort of patron saint of uh, jangly indie lads, you know, mm. which he mm. was, but it also... People, when I was a kid, were always writing into his show complaining because he didn't play enough of that. And he played yeah. so much weird techno and German freak-out music. And, you know, before that, the, where the hippies would complain because he played punk and reggae records, you know. Mm. Um, mm. And he was certainly a man of his time in the 60s and 70s, shall we say, in all the bad ways as well as the good ways. But it's certainly true that he um, is uh, not to all tastes as a Top of the Pops presenter. Um, and part of me thinks... Yeah, he just about gets away with it because he plays the bemused adult at the kids' party, you know. Um, Mm. But at the same time, yeah, you sort of... It does start to grate. I mean, I know, you know, far be it from me to complain about older men making schneid remarks about (laughs) sharp pop music for over a long period of time. But, yeah, (laughs) I do know what you mean.
3: I mean, the thing about Peel is, is that the people who venerate him now if he was alive today, they'd be the same people who would moan at him for playing loads of grime. Because that's yeah. what he would have done, wouldn't yeah, he? Yeah, of course he would. Yeah. yeah, of course he would.
5: And what's more, he'd, he'd do it bloody-mindedly as well. Not just because he liked that music, but because he hated the closed-mindedness of those people and wanted to piss them off. Mm.
4: Yeah. I mean, there was a true diversity to Peel in terms of his, his playlist for his own show. Because it wasn't just that he was playing, I don't know, hip-hop as well as... Indie music. He was playing stuff... I mean, nobody else, as far as I'm concerned, on the radio at that time. He'd play your tracks from Africa. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And he'd play your tracks from around the world, a pot world that you just would have no consciousness of without Peel. I mean, it's sad that it was mm. like that, but, I mean, for most of us, we only got to hear African music, for instance, Um, you know, via Peely. So, it, 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 yeah, you're right. It should never be undervalued, that. But, I mean, thinking yeah. about him as a TOTP presenter... Um, you know, I did kind of like his humour here and there, but I'm one. It makes you think: what Top of the Pops presenter did you actually unproblematically like back then? Yeah, and I'm not entirely sure I did like like you know any of them. but yeah. perhaps, I mean, when Janice Long came along, I, I, I liked Janice Long. Uh, Annie Annie Nightingale, I don't recall ever presenting Top of the Pops.
3: She um, was a guest on, I think it was the 600th episode or something right. like that. So so, so when I said earlier in a previous chart music that Janice Long was the first woman to present mm. Top of the Pops, you, you know, you can say Annie Nightingale was on first, but she didn't do a whole show. Yeah, I, I, And I don't know why, maybe she just didn't want to do it.
4: I did like the, I did like it when the presenters of Top of the Pops were the specialist people like Tommy Vance and Andy Peebles mm. and people like that. It was interesting yeah. seeing them rather than yeah. the kind of omnipresence of people like Noel Edmonds. But Peely, yeah. I'd say, would be, yeah, he'd be, he'd be up there as, as one of my favourite presenters at the time. But in this mm. episode, I just think he gets too much wrong and he and doesn't get the tone quite right.
3: But yeah. as a DJ,
4: I'm- exemplary, yeah. Yeah,
3: I mean, two things, Neil. Uh, the first thing is, is I've always felt that having a favourite top of the pops presenter is like having a favourite top of the pops cameraman or a favourite top of the pops <laughs> floor manager. Yeah, yeah. You know, they they have to be there, but that's it. Mm. You know, mm. and they have to be of a certain standard, but that's that's as far as it goes. And secondly, with this episode, is we'll find out. You know, uh, John Pill was always at his best on Top of the Pops when he had something to carp at that you could agree mm. with. Yeah. And as we're going to find in this episode, there's really not a lot of of carpable um, performances or or anything like that. There isn't anyone on there you think, oh yeah, he needs yeah. to be tucked down a peg or two.
4: Yeah, I mean, essentially, it's, uh, being a Top of the Pops executive is totally unlike being, say, Jules Holland or Murray or Grey on the tube. Um, yeah. And and this is why top of the pops I think is was such a good training in a sense for music journalists because what yeah. top of the pops does for you as, as a pop listener and as a kid watching it it doesn't give you any biographical blooming information about the band it's not there's not no. interviews with any of them all you no. have is the sound and the vision do you know what i mean the, the, mm. the song and the way that this band tr- choose to present themselves so yeah. in a way of developing a quick way of thinking about pop and an immediate kind of judgment about pop Top of the Pops is a hell of a lot. I mean, don't get me wrong, because music journalists should train themselves in the sense of finding out about music and reading about music. But in terms mm. of your response to pop, Top of the Pops is, is the best training you could ever have. And and, mm. and so the presenter, yeah, you're right, does just have to kind of be saying very, very little indeed and keeping keeping the show going. But that yeah. you know they're not getting as intrusive as they would on other pop music programmes.
3: Any presenter that's co-presented with John Peel is automatically the foil. And uh, you know, Kid Jensen and Janice Long are very good at that. Uh, how does Richard Skinner compare? <laughs> yeah, exactly.
5: Well, there isn't really <laughs> anything to say about Richard Skinner, is there? Other except no, that he no. dresses like a sex tourist and yes talks in that kind of 80s radio voice that nobody ever used in real life. He's not the worst offender, but he does do it. No, It's like mm. yeah. when you hear like a wax cylinder of Gladstone and you think, mm. why is he talking like that? I, I bet people didn't really talk like that. And it means you have no connection to it at all. You think, just relax, just be yourself. Mm. Yeah. What's wrong with, hi, this is William Ewart Gladstone. Um it's just coming up to nine minutes to eight. And uh, this is Trans with Living On Video. Also, yeah. uh, Richard Skinner. Why did he go out under the name Richard Skinner, right? Surely yeah. Dick Skinner. Yeah. Now, it's hipper and it's got yeah. that threatening edge.
3: Dickie Skinner might be a bit better. I mean, Dick Skinner does sound like a fucking death metal band, doesn't it? Oh, Yeah. 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 It does sound like Dickie Skinner, though, man, you, you, you know, you'd you need a revolving bow tie, though, wouldn't you? <laughs> Which wouldn't look out of place on that shirt, so yeah. <laughs> so, Peel sarcastically invites us to indulge in the hardest street sounds around, while Skinner tempts us with street-credible blancmange, and the next act beat credible Tracy Ullman with sunglasses. Born in Slough in 1959, Tracy Ullman started her career at the age of six by doing TV shows in her mum's bedroom window to cheer her up after her husband had died and eventually attended the Italia Conti Stage School, which she hated. After leaving there, she became disillusioned by acting and started working as a travel agent until she joined the second generation dance troupe playing Summer Seasons in Blackpool a job she lost when she forgot to put her drawers on one night. However, she was cast in the West End productions of Elvis the Musical and Grease, won the London Critics Circle Theatre Award for Most Promising New Actress and appeared on an advert for Hind Soup, Wearing a Cow's Head. She was immediately picked up by the BBC and made her television debut in 1981 in the sketch show Three of a Kind with Lenny Henry and David Copperfield and another sketch show called A Kick Up the 80s with Robbie Coltrane, Miriam Margoyles, Roger Sloman, Rick Mayo, and Richard Stilgo.
4: Fucking hell. Kick Up the 80s had Kevin Turvey on That's it, right, didn't it? yes, my yeah. dad loved Kevin Turvey, so I did watch that show. In
3: 1983, while she was having her hair done, she was approached by the wife of Dave Robinson, the head of Stiff Records, and asked if she'd like to have a recording career. She said yes. And her debut release, a cover of the 1964 Irma Thomas single Breakaway, got to number four that year. Her next release, a cover of Kirsty McColl's 1979 single They Don't Know, got to number two for two weeks, held off the top spot by Karma Chameleon. This is a follow-up to My Guy, a cover of the 1979 madness tune, My Girl, which got to number 23 in March of this year. And it's a cover of the 1965 Skeeter Davis single. And it's up this week from number 36 to number 26.
4: I actually actually quite like this. And and kind of, I didn't know that Skeeter Davis did the original because Skeeter Davis is responsible for one of my favourite kind of teen hysteria records, end of the world. Yeah, the definitively um...
5: titled Weepy. The definitively titled Weepy. (laughs) There is no Weepy after that. that
4: (laughs) <laughs> yeah it's apocalyptic that record but um the original i mean skeeter's original is kind of light and backracky in vibe and and the sandy mm. Posey version is pretty good as well from later on in the 60s tracy ullman she kind of spectres it up doesn't she um it has that be my mm. baby beat to it and makes it more hysterical mm. but it's a kind of great simple song so she can't really go wrong i mean what annoyed me really about this mm. performance was that neither tracy nor her bucking vocalists a frigging wearing sunglasses. I mean, I would have thought that would be an mm. obvious thing to do. I remember loving the video for this as well. Not just because it had yes. Aid Edmondson in it and Kenny Island as yeah. well. But it. it I, I, I just liked looking at beach holidays because it, it blotted out the recurrent nightmare that I was having at the time about my parents booking me an adventure holiday. Um, oh, no. Because well, I told them like a bloody idiot. I said, look, if, if you want to make my life hell... Um, but me on one of the. Because, you know, adventure holidays were just starting them where you go and fucking kayak for a week or something with other kids. And mm. um, that was my idea. Fuck uh, yeah. That. that was my idea of hell on earth. So um, anything that reminded me of beach holidays was lovely, um, including this video. Yeah. Um I, I, I was just well disposed towards Tracy because I love The Other Kind. I like to kick up the 80s. I did watch any old mm. shit back then, and I used to find Russ Abbott and Bobby Davro funny, probably. But it was clear that those yeah. two shows were a bit of a cut above. And it was down to the performers mm. and the writers. It was also pretty clear that Tracy Ullman sort of lived for the video and the top of the pops appearance in terms of her pop career, yeah and was never going to really get in the van you know and go on the road as such. So she no. moved on, but as a singer of other people's songs, she was okay, um, and I think basically, yeah. I fancied her, she had great legs, she looked at, she looked nice yeah. and, and she was hilarious. Um,
3: yeah, I was going to say that the, 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 the only mistake Tracy Ullman made in 1984 was not to marry me because you know I was I was legal then. <laughs> you fucked up, Tracer. Yeah, I fancied the ass of mm. Tracy Ullman. She just g- go next door type mm. and and
4: and funny. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's all I want, it's all I want out of life. And she looks great on this on this performance as well, and I'm yes. not just I'm not saying it's a lecturer shot. But the but the the no. shot from sort of below when you see just the statuesque beauty of her legs, it's a fantastic shot. She looks great.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, and she, I mean, the outfit she's wearing—it's a kind of like a yellow and black vaguely swimsuit <laughs> uh, mini dress that the two backing singers are wearing, but uh, inversed. So, so, so Tracy's like yellow and black, and they're black and yellow. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's not a bikini or anything like that. It's it's tasteful. Yeah. It's
5: a retro swimsuit to go with the yeah. kind of yes. uh, cutesy nostalgia of the record, the mm-hmm. hallmark yeah. of a dying culture. But not <laughs> not that objectionable. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, this mm. song is was written by, uh, what's his name? John D. Loudermilk. Uh, yeah. The fantastic yes. name John D. Loudermilk, who was... Probably best known for Indian Reservation by Don Farnham. Yes. Which is a pro-Native American song, which perhaps nowadays would not be considered quite as pro-Native American. Um, (laughs) But it's it's like a lot of songwriters from that period who were kind of, you know, bright, sophisticated, urbane people. It's a humorously articulate song, which Mm. always ends up sounding Mm. a bit whimsical and perhaps a bit too cute, yeah. which is about right for this project. But it is weird. Yeah. yeah, Tracy Ullman made, how many singles? Maybe eight singles or something, and they're not. Yeah, None of them are terrible. They're kind yeah. of okay. No. And she played it very safe by picking, you know, old songs that it's hard to dislike, or in the case of They Don't mm. Know, uh, a modern song that sounded like an old song that's hard to dislike. Yeah. Um. Mm-hmm. But... Yeah. You know, if someone comes, to, oh yeah, you, you remember Three of a Kind? Yeah, woman we off that made some records. Oh, oh yeah, but now they're all right. I the first time I saw Three of a Kind, I thought it was the funniest thing I'd ever seen. Right? <laughs> Written, mm. by the way, uh, in large part by Kim Fuller, uh, brother of mm. Simon Fuller, and uh, author of that mm. bleak parody of 90s Britain, Spice World. Um <laughs> and I thought it was the funniest thing i'd ever you seen know. in my life when I was yeah. you know eight or nine mm-hmm. because it was on the level of a children's program, and of course, uh-huh. if you see it now, yeah it's like if uh it's like if not the nine o'clock news hadn't slept for a month, you know and that's the sort of level <laughs> yeah that's at.
3: well it's more like it's more like not john Craven's news round yeah, isn't it
5: precisely yeah. not john yeah, Craven's yeah. news round. that's brilliant but <laughs> uh, the other thing you notice when you look at it now is that for the time, it's quite progressive, purely because it had Lenny yeah. Henry in it. In all these sketches, yeah. where yes. the fact that he's black is not relevant, right? Absolutely, like he's yeah. playing yes. a, a bloke in a shop, or often he's playing Tracy Ullman's husband in yeah. like a, yeah. a yeah. front room, and they're watching the telly or something. And uh, yeah. you don't, you're not supposed to think, oh, it's a, it's, it's a mixed marriage. It's just yeah. that's not the yeah. point. It's yeah. just, and weirdly, that was still quite a new an unusual thing in Britain at the time but apart Definitely, from that yeah. yeah it's it's like copycats or Russ Abbott's <laughs> madhouse yes
3: yeah. yes I mean there's a thing where she does Jenny Hill and uh, Lenny Henry plays a waiter who uh, gets his arse pinched all the time and that was like oh you know that's uh it's pretty good yeah,
4: yeah. <laughs> yeah. well I mean how many interracial couples are on telly now not many So, you know...
5: Whereas whenever David Copperfield is is in a sketch, uh, the fact that he's a Yorkshireman is always the point. (laughs)
1: Yes.
5: (laughs) Often the only point of the sketch. But, I mean, yeah, generally it's it's about as funny as a fucking... as a nursery full of lava. (laughs) I'll tell you something weird as well about Three of a Kind. It's the only show I can think of where when they do song parodies, they use the actual music from the original record. Yeah. And just yeah. change the lyrics, yeah. which I suppose is a is a sign of how tame they are, because you know they would have had to ask permission yeah. for that, you know. Uh, and if yeah. it was on the level yeah. of uh, most song parodies that people used to do in those days, where basically the lyrics would say, "I am shit," you know what I mean? Always hated that <laughs> yes. kind of where you get someone dressed up as the thing, they come on and go, "I am shit," all my songs are so <laughs> crap, and that was supposed to be the joke. Um, <laughs> yeah, well, this isn't this isn't like an amazing record, but it's listenable and it's not completely yeah. charmless, which is mm. which is weird. Yeah. And I think that's partly because it's done as a playful performance, and there's no sort of laughable yeah. uh, attempt at sincerity. And her mm. sort of like her very natural smile and obvious enjoyment keeps it this side of objectionable, despite the fact that it's like an actor and comedian. Making a record for their own vanity and fantasy fulfillment, mm. Ta- thus taking up space yeah. and taking work from actual singers. I mean, you know, that's always Whoa. what pisses me off about it. But
3: mm-hmm. no, it's all right. Yeah. I s- see the, the musicians' union's been broken in two, hasn't it? By this yeah. time.
1: Okay.
5: But also, th- what's interesting about it is there was different ways through time that producers try to recapture that specterish sound. Or even like mm. a Shadow yes. Morton-ish sound. Um, mm. Now, this would never be mistaken for the real thing. It's audibly a nine, uh, sorry, it's audibly mm. an 80s record and weaker mm-hmm. for it. Yes. But there's an understanding here, which is often missing from later attempts to copy that sound, which is that it's about excess and being yeah. overwhelmed. And it doesn't sound neat and pre- mm. precise. Um, and the producer yeah. here is a bloke called Peter Collins, who was a sort of old pro journeyman producer who's mostly known for doing fm rock stuff um and i yeah. think at this point was not a big name but it's authentically splashy mm. and overloaded yeah. in a way that you don't necessarily ex- uh, expect from a mid 80s record which is sort yeah. of helped by the yeah. the damp down audio on this particular file that we're watching which makes it sound a bit mm. more like medium wave radio but um it yeah. does work um and it does kind of sound like what it's meant to sound like.
4: Yeah, the one the one mm. thing stopping it in a sense being a perfect kind of simulation of the Spectre thing is, I think the bass. The bass is like really prominent. It's not like a din in the background. Right. Yeah. Um, it's like quite a, quite a clean eighties bass that you can hear. But still, you get the sense that it's so overloaded. If you heard this on AM radio, it sound it'd sound fantastic.
5: Also. What is the the deal with the set? They've got a set right, which is mostly just a big yes. blue screen with a sun on it to look like the sky, and then a deck chair. Mm. And the deck mm. chair is
3: massive—kind of thing you see in shopping centres nowadays.
5: It's like to suggest that they're on the beach with Andre the Giant or Patricia yeah. O'Neill or somebody like this. Just like a—I don't understand what is it supposed to signify.
3: They should have had a massive chunk of broken glass and a
4: massive dog to... <laughs>
3: Next to the deck chair as well to get that full seaside effect.
4: I mean, the thing is though, the studio in this episode—I don't think I've seen a Top of the Pop studio looking so unimaginably vast. It just looks fucking yes. enormous. So for, for
3: for the '80s, yeah. I mean, it's it, you know, in the '90s it started getting really warehouse air, but yeah, you're right, Neil. You're right. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. It's huge.
3: Never really liked this song at all, but I have to say that that her version I feel is better than the original. But that might be because I've heard this version so many times, that I've only heard the original a couple of times. But yeah, and and, and also the other the other problem with this kind of like this this version of the song is is that you know a com- a comedian, as we used to call them, is singing it. So you just you know at the time you just think, well, she can't be that upset. She's mm. you know she's dead famous yeah, and she's who funny. you ever heard of
5: a comedian being unhappy?
3: Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. exactly.
5: I'm trying to think of something negative to say yeah. about Tracy Elmer for a bit of balance. I know yeah. that she
3: when the, no you, you know this fucking hell, this is this is a new thing.
1: <laughs>
3: I was I was thinking I was going through this going oh yeah 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 Tracy Urmson yeah 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 what about Taylor's got something to no, say? No, no. Well, we, the,
5: the, this is a uh, this is probably on balance without wanting to spoiler it probably the highest quality top of the pops we've ever yeah. done because there's nothing on it that's so mind-bogglingly atrocious it drags the average down Mm -hmm. so you know trying to think (laughs) trying to play devil's advocate i know that you know the simpsons started on a american show as break bumpers yeah and she never liked those cartoons and then spent the next two decades acting like she'd invented them uh, and somehow deserve yeah. credit for them. There you, there you go. go. Although it's fair enough because at that point they were horrible and ugly and unfunny. Yeah. Um, and the only other thing yes. I know about Tracy Ullman is that she's got 80 million pounds in the bank. And I can't remember where I read yeah. this. She's one of the richest um, comedians in the world. Yeah. How? I know you make a fortune <laughs> in American television, but what the fuck has she ever really done? Nobody has ever met a Tracy Ullman fan, right? I can't think of one.
3: But well, we've, we've sounded yeah, like yeah, one well, for the yeah, past so she's fucking all right, 10 minutes. She's all
5: right, but 80 million pounds? I mean, far be it no. for me to compare myself to the hilarious Tracy Ullman. But <laughs> according to my last bank statement, she's richer than me by 80 million pounds 168. <laughs> <laughs> so am I being completely unreasonable or, or some kind of communist? to question the fairness of this wealth distribution.
3: Shit, you're richer than me, Taylor. Look. Absolutely. So, the following week, Sunglasses jumped seven places to number 19 and would eventually get to number 18. It would be her last top 40 hit, however, and after two flop singles, she called it a day appeared in Paul McCartney's Give My Regards to Broad Street and eventually moved to America. I mean she she dropped right off the radar, mm, didn't yeah, she? Yeah completely. When she moved to America. It's um you know, back in those days, if you if you were on American TV, you know, there was a very good chance that you wouldn't be seen on British TV again and that was the case with her. Yeah,
5: considering they used to put like Seinfeld on at like half past eleven at night and mm. the Simpsons yeah. are opposite the news. Uh The BBC showed like series one of Curb Your Enthusiasm and then dropped it. It's like, yeah, it's (laughs) a very weird
1: approach.
2: Sunglasses. And our next guest, a phone from America, just to be with us on top of the box. Tossing and turning, two things I do inordinately well windjammer. Tossing
1: and turning,
2: and
3: my That's <laughs> all I do. Peel surrounded by gorky youths who've been lacerated by the 80s stick, gets in a sly masturbation reference as he introduces a band who have come over from America for this, Windjammer, with Tossing and Turning. Formed in New Orleans in the mid-70s, Windjammer were a jazz funk band who got their break when guitarist Kevin McLinn sneaked into a local hotel where the Jacksons were staying, accosted Tito in a lift and slipped him a demo tape. Two years later, Tito's dad, Joe, signed them to a management deal and they were eventually signed to MCA in 1982. This is the lead-off single from their second LP, Windjammer Two. It's been picked up on by Tony Blackburn on Radio London, and it's up this week from number twenty-one to number twenty. So, yeah, the, the first chance we get to see the youth them. Well,
4: you say youth them? Um, they're not kids. Yeah, I know. they all look yeah. about <laughs> thirty. And and there's there's mm. two women in in blue dresses and matching fake pearls who are clearly, I think, Thatcher lovers. They're kind of trying to look mm. a bit a bit like Margaret Thatcher. And the one that annoyed me the most, out of the group of people surrounding John Peel, there's a bloke there, and I shouldn't object to somebody just because of their physical appearance, but um, he's got a really, really long head. And um, <laughs> what I say to my wife sometimes, just to wind her up, is um, you've got a big head covered in face and that's what that bloke has got. <laughs> 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 oh, you too smooth guy. He his face his head's too big and his face covers it. There's there's it's just not right. That these aren't kids Al. They these aren't youths. They look I don't know. They they they're in that not please sir but but they're kind of they're in between. <laughs> I can't tell whether they I can't tell whether they're kids or just very dubious
3: 30-year-olds. Uh, is kids man we you know, we We'd had tough yeah, paper rounds. Yeah, you're right. I think yeah. we'd had grifters.
4: Yeah.
3: <laughs> so this band, what would you call this jazz funk? I
4: um, I'd just call it funk. I just call it funk soul. I think. Um, right. And it's right. dated, though. It, I, 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 it's, it's very dated, dated, but in a in a beautiful way. I, I really like this, and I, I didn't remember it at mm. all. Um, this song. No. Um, but. Um, I really like that song. I love that late seventies, early eighties funk feel, where it's slightly touched by electronics, but not totally taken over by it. So, yes. so it's got that. It's got the feel of a kind of mid-period cameo album, like Secret Number or, or Cameosis or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's really nice. Um, really nice groove. Really good song. Nice sweat mm. bands, which seem to be a recurrent thing oh, on yes. everybody. Um, yeah. But um, it, again, Windjammer. Actually, I, I should say the swing, the camera swing over to Windjammer again reiterates the unimaginable vastness of the studio. It goes, it yes. goes from an enormous stage for Tracy Ullman through two really long sweeping arcs to get to Windjammer. Mm-hmm. All of them dressed in white, um, which seems to be a recurrent theme in this episode as well. Yes, And I, I think yeah. the song's great. Yeah. The band look pretty cool. Um, The only problem... Well, you say that, Neil, but to my mind, they look like a living Littlewoods
3: catalogue page.
4: (laughs) They're kind of like all in white
3: with black and grey markings in
4: in different positions. They're all in white, but they've been given a little bit of freedom, haven't they? They've basically been told, go to the shops, get yourself something in white. So they're all choosing something a little bit different. The only problem with the look for me is the singer, because although he's got a great voice, he's got these weird tiny eyes. He he reminds me of um, Mm. that gif of Charlie of Charles Manson that was doing the rounds after mm. after Donald Trump was elected. He's got he's got this yes. really odd kind of looks in his eyes, sideways glances and yeah. slightly damaged looks. But a brilliant song that I had no idea about yeah. until watching this episode. Well, I, I
3: think he's got that look in his face because he's probably caught himself on a monitor and go what the fuck am <laughs> well, I wearing? What the fuck
5: do he, I look like? He's it's very weird. He's, he's yeah. he looks more like a corporate logo than a real human being. Do you know what I mean? But yes. the rest of the band look totally normal. They were just really yeah. ordinary-looking blokes, yeah. and then mm. there's him. And you mm. hear the song, and you expect to see some slinky smoothie, you know, and instead you get this yes. sort of giant, chubby-cheeked man-child with that range yes. of cartoonish facial expressions, which is totally in- inappropriate to the music, and this weird <laughs> yeah. shuffling side-to-side dance with hunched yeah. shoulders. Like a CGI bear.
3: Or when they get some kind of like really old celebrities on Mad Lizzie <laughs> on, uh, on Good yeah. Morning Britain and they can only do so much. But, but I mean, he's wearing a, a kind of a, a button-up cap-sleeve top mm. that he's much too yeah. old for. Well, I don't yeah, know, because I,
5: I suspect this guy is younger than he looks. I mean, he looks simultaneously yeah. five and fifty-eight. <clears throat> Um, and those people yeah. normally turn out to be on the on the younger side. But, yeah, and he's got those massive sweatbands, yeah. um, like massive white sweatbands. <laughs> yes. He looks like Judy Garland after a suicide attempt. It's a bit sort of... <laughs> 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 but it's good because he provides mm. a novel visual focal point, which sort of too mm. few mm. soul-funk acts could claim. But, yeah, what a sublime record. It's just a mm. beautiful, yes. translucent summer single you know and yes. i never got on with this stuff as a kid and i think i've said this before no me neither um, but by this stuff i mean anything which prioritized rhythm and feel over melody and power mm. i was a wholly cerebral child not at home in my own body
3: yeah. uh you were German, not French.
5: Precisely. And I would not <laughs> have been able to sense the difference between this and Shack Attack. You know what I mean? Yeah. They all yeah. have yes. been the same to me. Uh, this especially I'd have N- had... Nowadays,
3: you're kind of like Swiss, though. <laughs> well, there you go, yeah, yeah. <laughs>
5: but this especially I'd have had problems with because of the associations, because it's music for casuals, isn't it? Mm. Yes. So mm. all I'd have heard would have been the slightly chintzy undercurrent and the frictionless surface on it. Um, yeah. Mm. In fact, it's quite weird because, yeah, as Neil says, it's sort of caught between... T- it's got like a, a, that sort of mid-80s sound coming through, but it's still got the old yeah. disco strings on it. Uh, or, yeah. you know, yeah. mock strings, which... And now I listen to it and I just feel it, you know, in a way that I was mm. never yeah. able to when I was young. It's just as an experience. Yeah. as like three minutes of texture and perfume. It seems to me yeah. self-evidently pleasurable. It's like when I meet people who don't like reggae, right? And I yeah. always want them to listen to, uh, say, to No Love by the Twin Roots, like the long mix with the version at the end, or you know, something mm. off Heart of the Congos, and say, even if this doesn't interest you as music or as an expression of emotion, do you not feel it? Does this mm. as soon as this record comes on? Do you not just feel like you're getting into a warm bath on a rainy night, you know, or mm-hmm. just or just sliding gently into a duck, you know, balls deep? <laughs> it's
1: just <laughs> this is not
5: quite at that level, but the same thing applies. No. It's an inescapably uplifting uh, record and a, just a beautiful sort of sensory experience. Mm. And I like how they're a vision in Arctic white as well except yes. what lets it down for me is that they got all the white instruments as well except the bass yeah. guitar which lets the side down um and mm, the yes. drum kit the yes it's got one of those drum kits like the gold Run off blockbusters you know like those of course yes and it's bright red <laughs> and there's a great shot near the start of the drummer doing a fill with this weird expression of appalled disbelief did, did you notice this he looks he, looks yeah. like he can yeah. sort of smell shit you know what I mean it's like <laughs> he looks like he thought he was joining the UK subs or you know yeah. and then he's like heard them it's like what the fuck is this crap you
3: know uh, mm. oh, or or he just saw that giant deck chair and go who the fuck is going to sit into that in a bit <laughs>
4: Something's happened with the sets of, of Top of the Pops here because behind uh, Windjammer, whilst they're doing this, all dressed in white, it looks like the fucking national grid's on fire behind them. The light yes. shift is is massive. It, it's yes. weird, really, because in the late 70s episodes of Top of the Pops, there's no real analogue for, for the studio setup. There's two stages, no seats, and there's no other show like it, really. Now, um, in 84, I think you're right, Al, Top of the Pops is trying to look like a massive club replete yes. with the stairs yes. and the platforms and everything like that. So I was hoping that with this song, with the Ulman song, it's not really a problem not seeing the crowd because... I wanted to look at Tracy, to be honest with you. And you can't mm. really dance to that record. You can just granny clap to it. With this song, yeah. it would have been great to have got the lights on the crowd. And maybe, you know, something that never happens in Top of the Pots, unfortunately, have them dancing with each other in a Soul Train way. Um, but Yo. all we allowed, all we're allowed, there's a brief, weird aerial shot from the perspective of a bloke's nipple on the stairs. And that's mm. about it, um, yes. which is a shame. But the, the, yes. it just seems huge. It, it, it can't just be me thinking that. Watching this, the, the studio no. just seems massive, massive. I'd
3: have felt the same way about Taylor about this song back then. But to me, this was um, southern music, right? <laughs> um, it, it was it was for it, it was for people in yeah, London and yeah. Essex. Because I, you know, I used to go down to London on my uh, twice yearly excursions to buy shit, and I'd go into record shops, obviously, and you know. I'd go and immediately go to the black music section. I'd be flicking through and it's like, Maze, who, who are they? Uh, Lonnie Liston-Smith, who the fuck is he? You know, all this kind of stuff. There's all these bands... And you, you could just tell by the covers that, you know, this was not uh, of Kent yeah. or yeah, yeah. or Motown or something like that. And, you know, that the the name Windjammer could not be more jazz funk. Mm, and the mm. fact that they named their album, their second album Windjammer 2, <laughs> it's just like, oh, right, okay, step away from wait this. A yeah. Wait a minute, wait so a minute. You don't own an escort, step Windjammer away. Windjammer
5: is an, a, a giant early Victorian sailing ship. Is that, yeah. that yeah. to yes. me... That's one of the least predictable names imaginable
3: for a band like this.
4: It sounds to me like uh,
3: the name of a Bob James oh, okay, tune, okay. yeah,
4: or of a bit of, or of a Billy Cobham jazz fusion album from the mid seventies, something like that. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, it just reeks of that.
5: I would agree that the word sounds like that, but when you actually uh-huh. think about what it means, it's like if they'd been called Crinoline, yeah. or you know, Bodkin, <laughs> yeah. or something. And like, here he goes, Mariner's yeah. Astrolabe. It's, <laughs> I don't know it's a clay pipe
3: I didn't know what a windjammer was at the time you see so I just thought it was the muskets I would have probably thought it was
4: windsurfing or something yeah. like that yeah Aww. but instantaneously in the look the textures and everything about this record it is towny music essentially and yeah yeah, yeah. definitely yeah. Leo
5: Frick and the butt.
4: definitely but good but you know even those even those twats
3: you know they they, they weren't always no, wrong about it, everything it,
5: yeah. but if you want uh, a real example of how, in the eighties uh soul music was moving away from the tougher northern soul style sounds that you enjoyed mm. uh a, a much bigger culprit is coming up mm. soon so oh hold yes your fire
3: oh yes, so the following week, tossing and turning nudged up two places to number eighteen its highest position. The follow-up, Live Without Your Love, only got to number 91 in October of this year and Windjammer eventually split up in 1988. Kevin McClin went on to become Michael Jackson's PR manager in the mid-90s until his death, which must have kept him tossing and turning and wiggling in his sleep for a good many years. Fucking hell, that's a job and off, <laughs> innit?
5: isn't it? If only Michael Jackson had done a bit more.
3: Yeah. Eh? Fucking hell. Yeah, Michael, um, th- th- babies, balconies. No.
1: Transatlantic hit at number 20,
2: tossing in 30 for Wing and Now behind me here is Hazel Dean. She's number eight with whatever I do. <laughs>
3: bangs on about the fact that they're American again as he stands next to some more girls and introduces Whatever I Do by Hazel Dean. Born in Chelmsford in 1952, Hazel Paul was a club singer in the mid-70s who signed a deal with Decca and came eighth in the 1976 Song for Europe contest. In 1981, she released a limited edition LP of Bacharach and David covers which was only made available to radio stations which they could use to pad out their playlists without forking out as much on royalties. And the double A side, Medway, you're the one. Medway, that's where I want to be for that particular part of Kent in 1982. In 1983, she switched from pop soul and had a bang on that high energy thing everyone was going on about with the single Searching, I Gotta Find A Man, which was a huge hit in gay clubs, but only got to number 76 in July of 1983. She did slightly better with Evergreen, which got to number 63 in February of this year, and then had another go at Song for Europe, finishing 7th out of 8th. She started a residency at the London Gay Club Heaven, which led to searching, I Gotta Find A Man, being re-released, and it went all the way up to number 6 in April of this year. This is the follow-up, and it's up this week from number 13 to number 8. The first thing I've, I've got to point out, my first reaction with this was fucking hell. She is the dead spit of Claire Bolding. <laughs> my dad fucking hated Claire Bolding. Every time, every, every time he, every time she'd come on and I was there watching the telly with him, his face would fucking just just screw up as if she'd just had a shit on the floor, and he'd go, "Oh fucking hell, here she is, fucking bunter." <laughs> He used, to, he used to call her Bonty Balding.
5: <laughs> this is fucking great. And if you don't think so, you yeah. must be some kind of pervert. Um, yeah. It's like saying you don't like jumping on a trampoline, you know. What the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> yeah. I mean, for me, because um, this is a Stock Aitken and Waterman record, right? An early Stock Aitken right. and Waterman record. And for yeah. me, this is part of their holy quartet along with... Uh, You Spin Me Round by Dead or Alive, Mm. Respectable by Mel and Kim, and I'd rather Jack by the Reynolds Girls. I knew he was going to say that! I know a lot of people disagree with me on that, but I think it's an amazing... I
3: know, I had those four as well.
5: And much as I hated that sort of lazy, smirking attitude to Stock Aitken and Waterman, if anyone tries Mm. to take the revisionist line that there really was some worth to those endless soap star records and sort of rickety like medium nrg singles with big fun Mm. and sonia you know and tries to tell me it was like motor or something no you have to listen to those four records and then you understand just what contempt they really had for their audience and for their own abilities Mm. because that's what they were capable of right four completely Mm. different records uh with different moods and different levels of seriousness but all with a distinct producer's identity and a trademark sound all of which highlight the unbelievable laziness and sloppiness and lack of life that's in most of their work um and when you mm. think about how good um I should be so lucky or too many broken arts could actually have been if they'd yeah. you know if mm. they'd spent the whole afternoon on them you know like here <laughs> yes. all they've got to work with <laughs> is this high NRG singer who sounds like Bonnie Tyler after five bowls of Sago and, you know, looks like Claire Boulding or looks like your mum's friend, Jan. Um,
3: yeah, your, your, your mum's friend, Jan, who's uh, just split over her husband and doesn't seem that upset about it <laughs> for
4: some reason.
5: And they build this fantastic record from the ground up. Um, I love it.
4: Have you heard the 12-inch of this, by the way? because um, it, no. it's brilliant. No. It's absolutely brilliant, and and it reveals that kind of the weird closeness of that high energy pop to almost like industrial music or something. Um, I remember mm. reading um Pete Waterman interview um where he's saying that the bass on um, you spin me round. Um, isn't a real bass at all, and it's a sound that Matt Aitken made up from steel girders being hit with a hammer. Mm. I'm not saying St. Aitken and Wartman were Einsteins Neubarton Neubarten or anything, but you can, you all
3: the special effects men in Star
4: Wars. <laughs> but you can hear the influence of kind of uh, things like Blue Monday almost on this. There's a juddering kind of kick drum, um, and, mm. and, yeah, and you can you can hear you know, the
5: fairly direct influence of Blue Monday in uh, that bass line as well.
4: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you can also hear it on their first ever single, the first source single, the um, what was it? Uh, the Upstroke by Angels Aren't Airplanes, which was a kind of a relaxed rip off from the previous year. Mm. You could, but this is a great record. You can see why straight after hearing it, Pete Burns sort of asked Stacey and Waterman to make Spin Me Round sound kind of just like it. And I love the the yeah. the the bit I really like about it actually is what they've done with the backing vocals because they've not allowed any other backing singers in. Um, so they've got her to do her own backing vocals. That's what it sounds like anyway. And it makes it both a kind of externally big song, but also a kind of real sort of inward-looking echo chamber of the singer's desperation, really. Um, it's mm. a great fucking record. Melodically, it's in that sort of I Will Survive school of songs that are sung at... Yes, definitely, so, Yeah, It's a song to be sung at people. Um, mm. uh, but it's fantastic. I mean, it's just that knowing what was to come, as Taylor says, with, with, with Staten and Walkman, there's a kind of poignancy to this because, you know, Hazel Dean doesn't know at this point that she's going to be cast aside and discarded, as, as Staten and Woman always do. Mm. Uh, 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 yeah. When, uh, you know, the, the way they sort of cast aside Mel and Kim and, and things like that for, in preference yeah. for all these neighbours people was a real shame, yeah. was a real shame. There's care yeah. and attention in this record that, that they didn't have later on.
3: Yeah, if Hazel Dean had been in Albion Market, she might have got a few more singles out of them. Yeah. But the thing
5: is, there's a there's an incredibly positive simplicity to this. Uh, but it's like a mm. sort of it's like that euphoric simplicity, which in a way can't be repeated too often without blunting itself. You know, which may well yeah. be what happened with them. Like, you know, they just they just wore out their plastic hammer. You know, yeah. but it did some yeah. lovely banging while it lasted.
3: <laughs> yeah <laughs> I mean Neil you're totally right about the I will survive-ness of it but those kinds of songs have always you know I always think well okay if if, if you if we're finished and you're over there why have you sat down and written a song <laughs> it's and then okay. made it yeah yeah why is that <laughs> I
4: know what you mean but but it the,
3: the thing is why don't you just scratch me car up or something or Throw me pants out the window onto the street. But
4: I can see, I can see. Although
3: those Polaroids you took me, why
4: didn't you photocopy them and stick them up in the subway? (laughs) This is a record though. It's the use of it, Al. It will be used Mm. by, I don't know. I can just see people at parties that I've been at and, and nightclubs that I've been in at the edge of a dance floor, dancing to this, and singing this at somebody who has sat down. Yes. And and and, yeah. and it's that kind of use, that vengeance kind of aspect of the record that, yes. that makes it that makes it really powerful. And the production of mm. it is, is just fantastic. I do honestly, hugely recommend seeking out the 12-inch of it. It's about eight minutes mm. long, and it actually yeah. seems a little drier than the single version, but it builds, yeah. it just coalesces. It's just a wonderful, wonderful 12-inch.
5: Also mm. the important thing here is that the bridge section before the chorus is a straight rip off of the theme from Juliet Bravo <laughs> yes. which it's very distinctive chord progression um mm. which makes it probably the second most outrageous steal of a BBC theme tune for a top 40 hit after mm. uh, uh forget about you by the Motors um the dismal Ooh. follow up to Yes, fucking oh, yes. What does, Jesus, yeah. What does, yeah. It's the theme what from Grandstand. From? Oh I see yeah. It. As as soon as you hear it, really it is. become uh-huh, obvious. Uh-huh. But this the steel here works well enough, but it is it does mean that it's impossible to hear it without seeing that hat <laughs> and folded leather <laughs> yes. gloves and that sort of grim, indeterminate time period, rural northern location. Yeah. Which sort of detracts a bit from the sort of remorseless, lube-free thrust of this record. Um, (laughs) Although I'm sure it was a smash in uh, the gay clubs of Hartley. (laughs) Until, (laughs) until, uh, Until Sergeant Beck and Sergeant Parrish kicked the doors in and started booting people in the face. Oh, I mean, <laughs> yeah.
4: personally, I, I, I was totally oblivious to the kind of gayness of this. At, at the yeah, time me too. I would have, been, I would have been totally. Which is strange now. I think. I mean, looking at the two dancers she's got with her and the moves they make. I'm not saying they're doing anything particularly suggestive, but it. But it's highly. It's it, it's straight out of a gay club performance. Um, yeah, but, but I, you you wouldn't have thought that at the time. No, we, absolutely, we just, not. you'd have gone, oh well. Right, there's a woman.
3: And, uh, uh, oh, oh, she's got two black men dancing with her. Oh, black men aren't gay. Yeah, you see
5: those two <laughs> dancers and think, well, something for the ladies there. Yeah. No,
3: and they've borrowed Windjammer's sweatbands. Well. Actually, now you come to think of it, this song got, got played quite a lot of Ziggy's. Uh, Fuck.
5: Yeah. <laughs> Incidentally, um, speaking of the decline of Stock Aitken and Waterman, um, should mm. point out, in a show with a lot of cover versions in it, and with a lot of sort of mm. weird interlocking uh, network of cover versions. This was later covered by someone who turns up later in this episode. Um, also produced by Stock Aitken and Waterman. And while her right. version is superficially classier and a lot more expensive sounding, it mm. doesn't have mm. the guts of this version. It doesn't have that sort of no. popper's edge to it. Um, yeah. Mm. And I was quite disappointed because uh, I expected better.
3: And the, the only other thing I want to chuck in here is the backdrop. Uh, it looks like they're performing in front of a massive guitar fret, like in Guitar Hero. <laughs> Imagine though, high high energy Hazel Dean Guitar Hero. just just wouldn't work, would it? <laughs> so the following week, whatever I do, jumped four places to number four, its highest position. However, the follow-up, back in my arms again, would only get to number 41, as did the follow-up to that, and she never troubled the top 40 again.
2: on top of the box. It's dancing to records like that that enable me to keep my yummy finger. This is Geoffrey Osborne and this is On the Wings of Love.
3: Peel points out that dancing to artists like Hazel Dean has helped him keep his yummy finger obviously he he means figure, doesn't he? I can't slag him for that. I can't slag him for that. I make mistakes like that all the fucking time on chart Music.
4: There's that moment where he's got that crestfallen look in his eye when he knows he's fucked up, but he has to
5: move on. You you say obviously, but I didn't know that that was what he meant until you just said it then. Oh. (laughs) I spent the whole week going, yummy finger.
3: (laughs) But, you know, bear in mind that at the time he was doing the voiceover for the... For the amazing fucking trio adverts. Oh yeah. So that that company could have made John Peel's Yummy Fingers. Mm, yeah, yeah. So Peel introduces a pre-record <laughs> of On the Wings of Love by Jeffrey Osborne. Born in Rhode Island in 1948, Jeffrey Osborne was the son of the jazz trumpeter Clarence "Legs" Osborne, who played with Count Basie and Duke Ellington. In 1970, he joined the soul funk band Love Men Limited as their drummer, and they had moderate success on the American charts, and he became their lead singer in 1976, by which time they changed their name to LTD. After the band split up in 1980, he went solo and he first appeared in the UK charts in September of 1983 when Don't You Get So Mad got to number 53, but his next single, Stay With Me Tonight, put him over the top and got him to number 18 in May of this year. This is the follow-up and it's up this week from number 20 to number 15. Again, more, more whiteness in the outfit. (laughs) He's got a white jumper on and PVC trousers and, and fuck me, I bet he's really glad that it's not a fast dance song because uh, you know, it wouldn't be too long before he'd be sweating like Gary Glitter in PC World.
4: I, I think he looks ridiculous. He, 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 yeah. it, it's the kind of jumper Captain Birds I used to wear. He, it's <laughs> yes. like a sexy Daz boot. He looks fucking...
3: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, them trousers, man. They're not leg-hugging no, uh, PVC a really... trousers. They're, they're a bit loose and a bit too shiny. Mm-hmm. Ju- yeah, they, they mm-hmm. Not yeah, good, very
5: foster brothers. Yes, I'll tell you what I will say for him though the opening shot um, of him looking meaningfully into the camera. Um, if America had had a black president in the 1820s, Jeffrey Osborne is what <laughs> he would have looked like. If you swap that horrible pullover for a frock coat mm-hmm. and a yes. high starch collar, um, and there he is, he's got his mutton chops and his chin beard and his unflappable yeah. gaze no mustache no mustache no connection yeah. mm. between uh, <laughs> the upper lip and the yeah um looking like he's got the hand of destiny on his shoulder you know you can imagine him sepia tinted in a stovepipe hat yeah. um snipping yeah. the ribbon on a new railroad
4: well it's uh, it's very weird because the background as well the backdrop for this performance um, it looks like a vivisection laboratory or something. It, it, <laughs> yes. it, it looks like that. It, it, did you notice? It, like there's cages on the floor. And I, I kept mm. expecting to see, I don't know, the movements of some poor tormented rodent who's been given too much insignia aftershave or something. It's <laughs> yeah. a really, really weird backdrop, which was the only distraction for me um, from a deeply tedious song I have yeah. to I mean, it's, um, what, it's one of those... um I right to talk about the song?
3: Yes. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, why not? <laughs> Fuck it. Chuck it in, Neil. Well, Let's, well, you know, it's kind, we can it, talk about songs every now and then. It, it's
4: one of those adult songs that I hated back then, because it's just all about love, which is so boring. And I would have sat there. Yeah,
3: a boring love with love without doing it.
4: <laughs> well, this is it. And I would have sat there with my thumb just firmly pointed downwards for its entire duration, including yeah. the dreadful circus-style music bridge, and including Ooh. the most horrible telegraph predictable key change, that kind of Elton John Disney key change that happens towards yeah. the end. Yeah, this does um,
3: sound like a Disney song, doesn't it? It does,
4: and it's fucking boring. It sounds like it was written yeah. by somebody really rich on a very big white piano looking out over yeah. the Pacific Ocean. And and, yeah. and it, would have, it would have driven me from the room, I suspect, in 1984 watching it. Um, yeah you you can imagine some
3: cartoon mice having a bit of a snog on a on a massive stalk <laughs> as it swoops over the cityscape to this
4: i was I was also kind of annoyed that he does um he repeatedly um does the two fingers to illustrate the lyrics but he never yeah. in a touching act of american british cultural misunderstanding does the v's and does it the wrong way yeah. Which is a shame. Yeah. I mean, it's a deeper shame in general that the Vs are disappearing um, from yeah. this country. I, oh, I, tell me about can it, that. Can I just I say, was. Yeah, a, go I, on, you I, go on. My stepson, right, is a wrestler. I, I, I might have mentioned this before. Yeah. Um, and, uh, he, he, he fights... Um, in a, in a a Cov Pro wrestling right, which goes on here, yeah. and uh, his name is Jake Casanova. He's a great wrestler, but um, nice. uh, he attracts lots of kids, fa- kiddie fans, like little, little, really little kids, eight, nine, ten, um, yeah. And you'd expect, you know, with the heels coming out, in rather, um, yeah. Jake's a blue eye, by the way, but it, when the heels come out, you'd expect, you know, some f- some V's uh, being flicked, but it's all middle fingers now, there's n- the clunt. V's, the V's are completely, you know. They're gone. And I remember yeah. some of the great... Doesn't he get V's on the stick and reprimand these
3: kids for, for pissing on their flag? No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Well, he fucking well should. <laughs> he should stick two fingers up and go, this, see this here, heritage. It
4: it is heritage. Pride. This this American thing here, it (laughs) sort of looks like a cock. Fuck that. It's so odd that Taylor was on about a train up to Birmingham. um, Because I remember getting a train up to Birmingham. uh, This is years ago, decades ago. And in the distance, there was a set of swings on some waste ground or something. And two kids kind of disconsolately swinging on them. And as soon as Mm. they saw the train, you could actually see them leap off the swings and run towards the train, sticking both Vs up. Yes. for no reason whatsoever. Bless you know, him. But, but That's what that makes I'm me afraid. proud to be British. <laughs> yeah. That I'm afraid, it's a, it's a vanishing sight. I'm I afraid. mean, yes, yes, the two fingers
3: in the gestures thing. The upsetting thing is that he does that, but then he just forgoes the most obvious thing, which is to, at the end of the song, just turn around and just flap his arms like the Beakles <laughs> did when they were getting on that plane to go to India. That would just bring the majesty of the song <laughs> uh, together, wouldn't it?
5: Or he should come out uh, like in a big bird outfit. Like uh you know mm, yeah. yeah with the legs yeah. with the sort of like yellow tights going into the, the, <laughs> the yeah. claw boots. Uh no, yeah. there's so many missed opportunities here. I mean oh, yeah. it is a terrible record. And yeah, you know, no offence to any white listeners if we have any, but this is a weirdly, <laughs> weirdly white sounding record. It's like it's the moment that yeah. Soul Music met Andrew Lloyd Webber and didn't yeah, just yeah, say, lol, WTF. It's, uh, <laughs> I mean, it is quite a neatly written and arranged record and it's got a nice, delicate yeah. baseline on it. But it, at the end of the day, it's closer to Every Loser Wins by Nick Berry than it is to yeah. Sam yeah, now, yeah, yeah. which is not a positive step. Um, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, right, I... I remember my absolute shock when Cherish by Cool and the Gang came out. And it was mm. partly yeah. shock that this band, I vaguely remembered being sort of funky, had squeezed mm-hmm. out this yes. blob of gloop. But mainly mm-hmm. shock that all the hard lads at my school went out and bought it,
3: right? Oh, for fuck's and sake, yeah. And it strengthened
5: my adolescent contempt for those people immensely. Because I can remember thinking, mm. either be a wimp, and listen to wimpy music yeah. and actually be sensitive <laughs> yeah. in your everyday life or be hard yeah. and at least match that with an uh, unsentimental, bracing approach to life and culture. You know,
3: mm, be yeah, fucking multifaceted. Yeah, cunts. being a, being a
5: show <laughs> twat and listening to syrupy, insincere ballads really struck me as the, the worst of both worlds. It was when yeah. you know, soul music and. Specifically, like casual type soul music was really going for this phony sentimentalism and Soft, yeah, lad, like yeah. coagulated mm. Valentine's residue um and I yeah. think that's the insincerity is the worst thing about it because it seems to follow mm. a very old fashioned unnatural idea of what it means to be romantic, right because no yeah. human is really that uncomplicatedly mawkish. Um, so it can only Mm. sound false and trite and it's worse for that veneer of sophistication because you listen to it, you feel like you're being played. It's like it's a snow job. You know what I mean?
3: Especially at our age as well. Yeah. You know, when when you're 14 to 16, you don't want the wings of love. You want the beak of sex. (laughs) Pecks by the beak of sex.
5: (laughs) But the thing is, even if it weren't insincere, who would need this kind mm. of sincerity in their life? Right? Imagine mm. yeah, having yeah. a lover who was like this, like the terrible pressure and embarrassment and the, the sort of self-righteous kindness, you know. And mm. it's Yeah. And also, yeah, like Al, like you were saying, soul music always used to have that toughness to it, even at yeah. its sweetest. Um so this is yes. like extra painful and it's what put a whole lot of people my age off soul music in the 80s, even the good stuff, because yeah. it yeah. had this atmosphere of a sort of soft focus, candlelit dinner with yeah. Gary Davis.
3: Right? Wait, it's, it's, it's crossover, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Uh, yeah. They're all trying to cross over. And also, also,
5: yeah. at the start of this song, he says, I'm sure that you're an angel in disguise. Oh, fuck mm. As soon as I heard that line, it's just, I can yeah. feel my hackles rising. Because it's like, it's, it's the <laughs> yeah. end of that street vernacular. Um, and straight yeah. into the sort of Clinton's cards lexicon of mm. schmaltz and like bad chat up lines and the language of a Coca-Cola yeah. advert and it's like what you get in pop lyrics now it's come back all those horrible songs of, It's all about chasing our dreams and shining mm. a light yeah. and you know our love will survive no. and all these horrible yeah. cliches and sort of lazy lines which if you actually said that to someone would be Oh, hugely the, insulting, yeah. hugely embarrassing, as well <laughs> yeah. as providing sort of instant and overwhelming douche chills. Um so <laughs> sorry, Mr. President, but um but you're yeah. worse than William Taft. Because even he got <laughs> at least he got stuck in a bath because he was so fat. What have you ever done? <laughs> yeah and also that C and A jumper only goes with le- leather trousers. If you're a member of the Pastels and you, sir, are not a member of the Pastels.
3: Imagine meeting somebody and getting on with them and, and copping off with them and, and you know, they say, can I do you a tape? And this was on it.
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Can you fucking imagine? You'd want to scrub your genitals with bleach, wouldn't you?
4: <laughs> the danger is, as Taylor's intimated, this stuff is being sort of rehabilitated. So if yeah. you, if you wrote a soft kind of ballad or a power ballad um, in the 80s, these things are now called classics. So we're now kind of meant to say or just accept with, with a slight dose of irony that things like Foreigner and fucking Mr. Mr. and all of this... It, it, it's, oh, fucking Africa. <laughs> it, it, a classic. Sick and, and I'm of sorry. seeing that on fucking Facebook. No, but this is it. And it's a, it's a kind of wry smile... Um, but also, yeah. th- 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 this hardens a consensus about these things that they're classics. No, they were shit then, and they're shit now, and, and, and it, yeah. that cannot be reiterated often enough.
3: Testify, brother.
4: <laughs> uh, and
3: the only other thing I've got to say about this song is that I am absolutely convinced that whoever wrote it had that picture that 1972 painting, Wings of Love, oh, by Stephen the... Pearson, which depicts a nudie woman sitting on some concrete slabs by the sea mm. as a massive swan delivers a bloke in the nip to her. <laughs> it That's is, funny. isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and of course, as we all know, that featured in Bev's bedroom in Abigail's parterre, mm-hmm. which caused Lawrence to have a heart attack. But it was also turned into an enormous mural in Saddam Hussein's swimming pool.
4: <laughs> yeah, did you not know that? Amazing.
5: So he'd be there um, looking at that while sipping his Johnny Walker Black Label breakfast. Of yeah, champions. E- e-
3: eating a bounty. That was his favourite chocolate <laughs> bar, wasn't it? Bounty? Which was quite apt, as he had a massive one on his
4: head at the end of his life. <laughs> <laughs> I love bounties; they're my favourites
5: too. There's another thing you've got in common with Saddam Hussein.
4: Yeah, but
3: but but most importantly, that picture was a main feature of Pete's chipper in Top Valley uh. from the mid seventies until round about this time. Actually, I uh, I love watching that picture. I, I was I was too young to be aroused by it at the time, so even now looking at it, I get really uncomfortable at the thought of, of putting my bare ass down on some concrete slabs and uh you know i I remember being in the queue on one Friday night with me mate, and uh, we were both looking at this picture as 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 fucking eight year olds and him leaning over and going that swan's really looking at that bloke's knob in he? <laughs> <laughs> while we were waiting for a p mix Ugh,
5: it's enough to put you off your battered sausage,
3: so the following week on the Wings of Love flapped four places to number eleven its highest position the follow-up don't stop only got to number 61 in october of this year and he never made the top 40 again although he had his biggest american hits with you should be mine which got to number 16 there in 1986 and his duet with dion warwick love power which got to number 12 the following year
2: So let's re taking off. OK, car folks, let's mosey on down and have a look at the charts. At 40, a flock of seagulls. The more you live, the more you love. At number 39, the Jacksons, with a state of shock. At 38, it's Bronski Beat and the small town boy. SOS Bander at number 37, just the way you like it. And Whammer at number 36, wake me up before you go-go. 35, it's Nervous Shakedown, that's ACDC. And Lionel Richie's at number 34, Stuck on You. You entry at 33, Howard Jones, like to get to know you well. At 32, Breaking, there's no stopping us from Ollie and Jerry. 31, Seven Seas, the ice caps are melting, Echo and the Bunnymen. Band of Gold are at 30, Love Songs are back again. 29, The Acceptable Face of Modern Music, The Mighty wild Come Back. 28, Thompson Twins by the Sisters of Mercy. At 27, Nick Kershaw, and I Won't Let the Sun Go Down on Me. Tracy Ullman's at number 26 with sunglasses. Modest Rod Stewart at 25, some guys have all the luck. At 24 is Jump for Your Love, the Pointer Sisters. 23, Trevor Walters, no relation, and stuck on you. And at number 22, and here in the top of the pop studio, Blamange, the day before you came. Blamange.
3: Skinner run down the charts from number 40 to number 22 and introduced The Day Before You Came by Blamange. Formed in London in 1979, Blamange were originally a trio and then a synth-like duo who put out an independent EP called Irene and Mavis a year later. They first came to prominence when they featured on the Some Bizarre album compilation alongside Depeche Mode, Soft Cell and The The and were subsequently signed to London Records. Their first two singles on the new label skulked around the lower reaches of the chart, but they hit the jackpot with their third release, Living on the Ceiling, which got to number seven for three weeks in late 1982. They went on to have three top 40 hits in 1983, including a number 10 with Blind Vision, and this single, a cover of the ABBA release, which only got to number 32 in October of 1982, is the follow-up to Don't Tell Me, which got to number 8 for two weeks in May of this year. ABBA fully endorsed this cover version, which is currently stuck at number two this week, to the extent that they allowed the group to use clips of their own video for Blomonger's version. But we're getting an in-studio performance here. So, but yeah, before we get into the song, let, we need to discuss the fact that how
4: ABBA just fell the fuck off in the early 80s.
3: can't believe that the original version of this song only got to number 32 in Britain.
4: Yeah, I mean, the original is one of ABBA's best. Um, yeah, late sort of darkest singles, totally electronic, a, a, a very much a studio confection, but lyrically mm. just one of their best songs. Yeah, um, so much of it resting on their ability to do to do boredom and, and banality so well, um, and the yeah. slight sense of mistranslation in the lyrics as well. Um, it's just a wonderful, wonderful record. I, I mean, I don't know if this has been mentioned before. But um, Late Period Abba, I think, has been best addressed, not to make anyone blush, by Taylor Parks's, um oh. essay about uh, Visitors, which, yeah, Taylor's probably going to grin about, but it's a fucking fantastic piece of writing that, that opened mm. up that album to me, um, and I think yeah. for a lot of people. Um, I love that song. I hate this cover.
3: Yeah. But, but this song is the follow-up, the true follow-up to The Winner Takes It All, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's the same character of, of, mm. a few years later.
5: Yeah, and I don't think ABBA songs respond that well to being covered in the first place. Uh, Mm, Partly because the originals are near perfect and partly because that slightly awkward English in the lyrics sounds natural in a Swedish accent, but sort of false in a British voice. Um, But the idea of taking their darkest and most grimly Scandinavian song, which is, this is a song Mm. where, you know, the the day of the title quite clearly lasts about three hours before it gets dark again. (laughs) Yes. Um, And just making it jauntier with a very Mm. superficial layer of Indian percussion and for no reason, and singing it as though it was some kind of joke. I don't understand what they thought they were doing. But, I mean, that is a puzzle that applies to Blamange in all sorts of ways because even their decent records are full of very odd artistic decisions, right? Like, <laughs> up oh, the bloody yeah. tree. Um, and my yes, guess, exactly, my guess yes. is they were just trying to be a bit different and hoping that that in itself mm. would be enough to make them interesting because they didn't have a coherent uh, vision.
3: Yeah. Mm. Or... Or that this song, they couldn't believe either that this song only scraped the lower reaches of the top forty. It's like, oh, this is a fucking brilliant song. Someone's going to have a massive yeah, hit maybe with Maybe we it. should
5: mm. hollow it out and stuff the cavity <laughs> with wadding and old jumpers and uh, and. Put a horrible droll delivery on it why are they doing this? why not just yeah. go yeah. around and house and piss through a letterbox i mean fucking hell like, <laughs> and it wouldn't be so bad if they'd totally changed the arrangement they've hardly changed the arrangement mm. at all um if you think about all yeah. the stuff that yeah. you can do with a synth and some indian instruments right the uh, amazing mm. different textures of sound you could create but they've got the same flute sound it's all the same dynamics just shit it up
4: I, I can't see the point of this cover, and, and I think the fatal moment, especially in this performance, is is a moment towards the end of it where he, the, the lead singer of Monde he smirks, <laughs> yeah. and, and you mm. cannot do that. You cannot do that with this record. The superficial changes they've made in terms of changing, you know, Marilyn French for Barbara Cartland or whatever, yeah. um, and and and, and yeah. yeah, the the incorporation of Indian musicians is totally superficial, which is the way it always was. As an Asian kid, what watching Top of the Pops, waiting for a bloody Asian to turn up, or at least somebody who'd admit they were Asian. Um, Mm. What we frequently got was bands who, in order to lend their music some vague sense of exoticism, would rope in a tabla player or rope in somebody playing something Indian, usually in a big Mm. Indian shirt looking all mystical. Um, Never actually sort of allowing... Eastern music into the structure of their songwriting or yeah. into the into the way their music is actually put across, just sort of superficially sprinkling it. Like, I don't know, yeah, a sprinkling of Garam Masala on a Yorkshire pudding or something. It it, yes. it it's it's not really it's not really in any sense changing. Or, or the, the, the curry
3: sauce you get at Chip is
4: <laughs> Which is lovely, don't get me wrong, but yeah. but in this case it it's fatal that he smirks. He smirks through it. Um yeah. and I'm not saying he has to be as kind of like deadly serious or mournful as i necessarily are with this song but you cannot smirk as soon as you smirk singing this song you 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 break it apart you break apart the whole purpose of doing it um Mm. and and it becomes like you said al just just basically a craven kind of this was a great song we could have a big hit with it um yeah as opposed to doing kind of anything interesting with it at all
3: yeah, and the other thing about the video is it's interspersed with the clips of Agneta as if Neil Arthur's saying, yeah, I'm I'm that bloke. <laughs> Copping off her out of ABBA. Oh, great.
4: I'm, I, I'm not entirely surprised that ABBA approved of this. You would. Yes. Yeah. As, as a band that have made Shitloads of incredibly successful music, you would kind yeah. of lend your tacit approval to a young band trying it, but um yeah, you know, their version pisses on this from an enormous heart. I was really pissed
5: yes. off as well by that little lyric change from yeah from Marilyn French to Barbara Cartland because why? Mm. and I looked this mm. up, I tried to research yeah. this um in the course of researching it. i found a quote on the internet about this song that purports to be from me. Which I never actually said,
1: (laughs) unless they've been
5: severely paraphrased. Um, But also I found a quote from Neil Arthur saying he'd been asked why they changed Marilyn French to Barbara Cartland. And he said, the fact that anyone would even have to ask why is hilarious. Would that We were all so easily Mm. amused. Now, I think that cover versions should have some small lyrical amendment or change, just to... Personalise mm. them, you know but this is a weird one partly mm. because you're taking an odd unusual choice of author and replacing yeah. it with a dumb and obvious one um and partly because yeah. Th- that no bloke yeah, would read and partly
3: because it yeah yeah yeah, yeah, yeah he, he, he should have changed it to i don't know sven hassel or <laughs> something like that you know or james herbert yeah. Or yeah or something in that style yeah or, or with cloth by <laughs> taylor
5: But also because it doesn't scan, right? Now, Marilyn French didn't Mm. quite scan, but Barbara Cartland Mm. really doesn't scan. And he lapses into an American accent just for those words. And also the elephant in the room here is that Bindi. Um, He's got a crap Bindi on it, which is obviously just, you know, like a dab of makeup because it's melting in the studio light. Yeah. Now, you know, yeah, I suspect Neil has more to say about this than me, or at least a, a more worthwhile <laughs> perspective. But to me, yes. it's like, first of all, okay, a lot of crap does get talked about cultural appropriation and, like, any white people who don't play country music or put on a mummers' play, you know, will be accused of this. Mm. But, um, which, you know, gives reactionaries the opportunity to write off the whole concept as a phantasm. But... It sort of isn't. Yeah. And you see this daft twat with this, like, this red dot <laughs> smirking away, you know. Okay, the Nehru jacket mm. is cool, right? I could get with that. But yes. Bindi, mm. yeah. it's like, you know, it's like, it just looks like he's taking the piss or something.
4: Well, no, this mm. is it. What, it. what it reminds me of is, is, you know, as an Asian kid in playgrounds in the 80s, there were certain things that were said to you and there were certain gestures and and movements that were done to you. One of them was the kind of prayer hands waggly head thing, right? (laughs) And and this just seems massively reminiscent of this. You know, the reason people felt that they could do this, I think was fundamental. I mean, you know, Hinduism was not a religion, perhaps, that was slapping fat on people. Do you know what I mean? No. It's kind of, it's kind of very much a, a, a sort of unorthodox, non-doctrinaire religion, whereby you don't yeah. even have to believe in God to be a Hindu, really. It's kind of, it's kind of the way that, you know, you, yeah. you're born into it. Um, so consequently, nobody was getting irate about this. But I remember yeah. as a kid... No
3: Hindu version of monkey, you see, that's where they went wrong.
4: <laughs> but I remember as a kid watching things like this and seeing things, you know, I, I'm not a... F- Offended, necessarily or upset by the fact that, that he's got this what we what Maharashtrians my family would call a kunku uh. on his forehead, but but it but it's it's always in that piecemeal kind of way. It, it, in a sense, what it does it reduces a, a, a foreign culture down to these little exotic elements that you can throw in, um, yeah. you know, and absolutely doesn't apprehend the kind of that. The true kind of the, the complexity of the culture. I'm not expecting yeah. Blamange to do that, but I'm also no. in the eighties. I'm not. I'm. Not, I'm not only annoyed by this, but I was kind of. I wasn't sated by things like you know Monsoon, Ever So Lonely, or anything like that, because it yeah. all seemed to be faintly on that kind of uh, Turkish delight, Eastern promise bullshit. <laughs> um, uh, I, I, I'm sure that
3: they, they meant well by incorporating kind of like Indian percussion and sounds into their work but but when they're dressing up like that the whole the, the kind of like overall impression they give off is an inversion of Dino Shafiq singing here we are again in between <laughs> scenes of It Ain't Half Hot Rock yeah. yeah no
4: absolutely absolutely in
5: fairness that yeah their interest in Indian music and Indian culture was genuine and not yeah. that trivial mm, and yeah. they had actually used uh, Eastern music in their previous records in quite a uh, constructive way but
3: yeah this yeah. is in a, in a way that wasn't calling the Kaftan yeah. or "Or holding, holding my shoe by Neil yeah. which, uh, <laughs> the, the, the fact that he changed yeah. the lyric from uh, um, from uh, Marilyn French to Barbara Cartland that's one thing but then why did he, he take the next step and change the lyric there's not a single episode of Dallas that I didn't see because a lot of men weren't watching Dallas, you know. If he'd have said, "I don't know," uh, there's not, I think, a single episode of Boom that <laughs> I didn't see. Or pot black. That would have made a yeah. bit more sense.
4: <laughs> no, you're right. You're absolutely right. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's a dangerous business covering ABBA. They add nothing. Yeah. They that they, they, they add nothing. And and uh, I yeah. come back to his smirk um, is just insufferable. And and and. Yeah, it just proves the, the base motives of doing this, I think. Um, let alone the the, the the kind of incorporation of Asian stuff. It's really at a depth. I know that things like Living on the Ceiling and stuff like that had a, perhaps a deeper enmeshment of, of Indian music than this does. Mm. But really, we're talking about a prefiguring of of the kind of depth of cultural appropriation uh, of Crispian Mills and Kula Shaker, really. It, yes. It's kind of, kind of spray-on. Um, go to an Asian Drapers, get yourself one of them big lungies, and, and sort of look like a, look like you know, it, it's kind of ridiculous. And then
5: at the end, when that cunt with the Shoreditch, Shoreditch Tash comes on to play four seconds of mariachi trumpet, I'm, I was almost ready to give him a pass for cramming so many dumb, clashing <laughs> ideas into this record and the presentation of this record. But no, it just makes it worse. I saw that guy... I thought I was in Bethnal Green and then I realised that I was in Bethnal Green and it was doubly shit.
3: (laughs) So the following week, the day before you came, stayed at number 22 for the third week running and would get no higher. The follow-up, What's Your Problem? I think we've just listed them, only got to number 40 and after two flop singles, they split up in 1986.
2: from their bread round. And now here are the really hot numbers that are cooking up the hit parade placings today. At number 21, Love Resurrection, Alison Moyet. Tossing and turning, Windjammer is number 20. Eyes Without a Face, Billy Idol, that's number 19. At number 18, You Think You're a Man, Divine. 17, Young at Heart, The Bluebells. Cindy Lauper, Time After Time at number 16. Up to number 15, on the Wings of Love, Jeffrey Osborne. 14, down on the street from Shack Attack. And up to number 13, here's Laura Branigan and Self Control.
3: Neil remarks that Beaumont have come dressed as bakers, while Skinner launches into the charts from number 21 to number 13, Resting Upon Self-Control by Laura Brannigan. Born in New York in 1952, Laura Brannigan was a graduate of the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and formed the folk group Meadow in 1972. After that band split up, Branigan spent the mid-70s as Leonard Cohen's backing singer and in 1979 she was signed to Atlantic Records and moulded into a pop singer. She scored her first hit in the UK with a cover of Gloria, an Italian song from 1979 which got to number 6 over here for two weeks in February of 1983. This is the follow-up to Solitaire, a second flop single on the bounce, and it's another cover of an Italian song which was originally recorded by Raff, and has been released at the same time. In the UK, it's up this week from number 25 to number 13, and we get the video.
4: That Baker remark, Neil, did that offend? No, that didn't offend. I was more perturbed earlier on when he's doing the rundown and he says um, that was at number 19, the Thompson Twins by Sisters of Mercy. That freaked me out. Yes. (laughs) Oh, and also
5: they use that publicity shot of the Thompson Twins, which is the only one you ever see. The single most, by the Hollywood sign, right, throwing shapes. It's almost physically painful to look at. They're such twats. The only yeah. the only good thing about seeing the Thompson twins oh. with their hands in the air like that is you can imagine you're yes. pointing a shotgun at them. <laughs> Just, okay, Just yes. Put down the xylophone mallets nice and slowly and yeah. face down on the top.
3: So this song, uh, I'm gonna turn now to our Italio expert, Mr. Pox. Uh you've heard the yeah. original by Ruff, yeah. obviously. And I
5: on the one hand, I sort of miss the basic charm and directness of that version. But unlike the last song we heard, this one does lend itself to being covered, and this is a wonderful thing Mm. in its own right, Mm. and it has a fascinating character of its own. Um, That kind of bold but understated melodrama is very mid-'80s. But as far as American Mm. Top 40 radio hits go, it's really the best of the mid-'80s. Yeah, she's a weird figure, Laura Branigan, partly for being an Mm. American... Whose music is relentlessly europhile, like not anglophile, oh, but yeah. europhile. As
3: yeah. yeah, she was pushed heavily towards that. Yeah, pretty that, much wasn't all she? her hits
5: are versions of euro pop songs. Uh, and as
3: yeah, didn't tackle shut up your face though, which was a bit <laughs> unfortunate. She'd have made a good stab at that.
5: It's a shame, is it? But as 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 Tracy Ullman was doing the mashed potato with the ghosts of the atomic age. Um, <laughs> Laura was walking towards the light of the Via Del Corso and it's not uncommon Mm. for American culture to flirt with something British or Latin American but it's strange to see Americans influenced by continental Europe you know unless you count the mafia Mm -hmm. Um, but what happens here (laughs) but what happens here is exactly what you'd expect to happen in that scenario in the you lose yeah. a little individuality but you gain a bit of power and polish and it's a reasonable
3: deal yes mm. Mm. Yeah.
4: yeah it's very european isn't it I, um mm. i i really like the song and i actually i think i prefer laura Branigan's version to raffs um she's in that weird place between sort of pat benatar european pop and, and a bit of power balladry so the verses are beautiful yeah. european pop music uh, the mm. chorus becomes a kind of big sort of power chord thing for the rednecks, I guess. But throughout yeah. the song, her voice, it seems like phased to fuck and sort of scattered around the mix. And yeah. uh, 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 she's just got a better voice than Raph, I think. And, and that's why I'm, I prefer this, which is actually helped by the supremely strange video. Oh, yes.
3: Yes, it is a bit mental, in it? Her cheery well, Irish William...
5: smile in her promo picture on the chart rundown does not reflect the content yeah. of this video. <laughs>
4: No, it's William no, it Freakin' really doesn't. for you. It's William Freakin', he's a fucking weirdo. Um, with the streets lined with bin liners yeah. and gymnasium, yeah. gymnasium crash mats. Um, it's, yeah. like, it's a weird video. It's like it's been cut together from several different failed videos. So that the moment when yeah. she suddenly starts actually lip syncing is just bizarre. It's like a Bollywood moment. <laughs> um, yes. But I, I liked the obscene moments or, or the rude bits in a way uh, there's a there's a dirtier version than we get here this isn't the full-length video yeah. for the pops uh, what what the obscene bit or the rude bit entails really is lots of sort of modern dancers undulating covered in paint like the kind of after yeah. party to the shoot of elton john's i'm still standing for. yes although everyone <laughs> says everyone has said this reminds them of kind of kubrick's um, eyes wide shut Um, For me, a a far more close cinematic analogue to it is um, the orgy scenes in uh, Howling 2, Sturber Werewolf Bitch, (laughs) um, which is a great (laughs) film, one of the great shit films of the 80s. Uh, It's so rude at one point that one guy who's not got someone to get off with looks like he's given a a viola a kind of reach round. (laughs) Um, it's right. it's a really weird video but a, a weird video for a, an absolutely brilliant song I knew this song but I didn't know Brannigan had done it um, yeah. but I, I think it's probably the best she did, better than Gloria I would say. Mm.
5: I hadn't seen this video mm. for years and I um, sort of barely remembered it and I absolutely was not prepared for the mm. blatant kinkiness <laughs> yeah. and sort of dark eroticism mm. of it Um I mean, this yeah. was a time when a lot of videos were trying to push it further and further, you know, in terms of naughtiness. But most of yeah. them tended to be steamy, yeah. right? Like, if you look yeah. at Madonna videos or mm. it prints, mm. it's steamy. Yeah. Whereas this is kind of cold and disturbed, which is why I like it better. But it's remarkable to me that yes. this was shown on what was effectively a kids' programme. Yeah. In the middle of the prudish yeah. English yeah. 80s. Um like yeah. yeah and there's there's the weirdness of it where she's she's walking down the fake yeah. street with the yeah the bin liners on the floor wearing a lilac scarf and a pale brown leather coat which in itself is you know quite strange yeah. and then behind her there's a pretend building with a picture window and for no reason while she's standing in front of it this black yeah. curtain slowly <laughs> draws back by itself to reveal in the window two naked yeah floating shop dummies yeah um just there's no for no reason at all um it's great but it's um yeah the heavy lesbian imagery and uh heavy bdsm imagery and uh uh, eroticized fantasy imagery shall we say Mm. Um, and the
3: the phantom of the opera
5: yeah exactly with the starring the phantom of the opera Mm. um and that astonishing bit where she's being, um I'm trying to think of a nice euphemistic word for it, uh, she's being, shall we say, taken in her yeah, bedroom. Yeah, yeah. by this guy in the mask comes in and it's like you sort of think, okay, well, um, yeah, this uh, this is not the kind of imagery I normally associate with Top of the Pops. And then he walks up to her, grabs the back of her hair and just yanks her down onto the bed with an amount of force... Yeah that you weren't really
3: expecting. No. And it's a real... It's not even just, in EastEnders mm-hmm. a year later. Precisely,
5: yeah.
4: No. And then there's five seconds of like POV porn, mm-hmm. basically, after it. it it's, mm-hmm. it's uh, but weird. It's,
5: it's vastly more interesting and provocative in its sexuality than any Madonna video, partly because yeah. Laura Branigan does not have a super sexy image. Exactly, so yeah. It's like the dark thoughts of yeah. a real person.
3: Yeah, of a librarian.
5: Yeah, rather than a sort of uh, (laughs) self-conscious promotional thing. And also, it adds intrigue and depth to the record, but it really it brings out the intrigue and reveals the depth of the record. Mm -hmm. It doesn't just sort of bolt onto the back of the song like a conservatory, you
3: know. Yeah, yeah. Her Saturday Nights were certainly more interesting than mine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Shouldn't end up with someone sniffing her pants at a bar while Hazel Dean was on? And Agadou. These used to play Hazel Dean and Agadou all the fucking time at that place. Now I think about it. Jesus. So the following week, self-control jumped up to number six and would spend two weeks at number five. While Raff's version got nowhere near the UK charts, it battled with Laura Branigan's cover all across Europe. Raff's version got to number one in Italy. Branigan's version did likewise in Germany, Finland, Sweden, Austria. And in Switzerland, Branigan was knocked off number one by Raf, who was then usurped by the Branigan version again. Fucking hell, Switzerland! <laughs>
2: And could have been an olympic standard swimmer as bad as that eh? time now for the top 12 the all important top 12. let's do it at number 12 the cane gang are the closest thing to heaven at number 11 everybody's laughing phil Piron and galaxy the 10 grandmaster and mel mel white lines don't do it it's a hard life queen at number nine Hazel dean's at number eight whatever i do wherever i go and at number seven hole in my shoe from neil at six, Frankie goes to Hollywood and relax. On the way down for the second time. Number five, when doves fry, That's Prince. And number four, black lace murderer Styley Agadoo. Number three, what's love got to do with it? Tina Turner. And a number two, careless whisper by George Michael. And would you believe after nine weeks they're still at number one? Yes, is this going to be this year's big Christmas hit? Frankie goes to Hollywood. Yeah. This is
0: the sound.
3: Drop some Laura Branigan trivia, which peel bats away as they run down the rest of the chart. Another another huge peel mistake here. Mel Mel. (laughs) Out of all the Radio 1 DJs, you'd think I'd get that right. Mm. Anyway, we lead to the number one single, which is, because it's 1984, Frankie Goes to Hollywood and Two Tribes. We've already discussed Frankie Goes to Hollywood in chart Music 2 and this is the follow-up to Relax, which got to number one for five weeks at the beginning of the year and is still at number six this week after spending three weeks in a row at number three. First heard on Radio 1 in November 1982 as part of a John Peel session, two tribes saw the band switching its attention from bumhole love to nuclear war, at a time when CND had its largest ever membership and we were all going to die. Not only did they enlist the services of Trevor Horn again, they also got in Chris Barry to reprise the Ronald Reagan impersonation he deployed on Spitting Image for one of many 12-inch remixes and got in Patrick Allen, the voice of the Protect and Survive public information films made in 1980 that were to be used when the government felt that we were 72 hours away from a nuclear attack. After a prolonged advertising campaign, which included targeted adverts across the music press, including the slogan "Take cover, you wimps!" Two tribes will blast the nose off a charging heavy metalist at 400 paces for sounds, and a table which broke down the biological effects of a 5,000 megaton nuclear war for Smash Hits, the video. (laughs) directed by Kevin Godley and Lol Cream, was premiered at midnight on Channel 4 and featured Ronald Reagan and Konstantin Shinenko beating the shit out of each other while being egged on by assorted national stereotypes and was dead good. Of course, it went straight into number one in June. And this is its ninth week at number one. And because Top of the Pops aren't showing the video, the band are in the studio again. They they spent a lot of time in the Top of the Pops studio in the summer of 84.
5: And indeed in the BBC bar, by the look of it. Yes,
3: definitely. Uh, well, fucking hell, where do we where do we begin with this? I mean, the first thing to say is that, you know, to get to number one in 1984, you had to shift a fuckload of records, but for yeah. do, but to do it for nine weeks, they could fucking have, hell.
4: As far as I was concerned at the time, they could have stayed at the one forever. Because when I was mm. 12 and 13... The most exciting band in the world to me was Frankie Goes to Hollywood. And and the album that opened my ears to what an album could do was Welcome Mm. to the Pleasure Dome. Even now, after the passage of time watching this clip, you know, the hairs on my head were standing on end, that same thrill and that same excitement. And to be honest, Frankie might just be the last moment I felt connected with pop, with with something that was popular. Um, So ubiquitous that year, but still just totally thrilling because there's such Mm. a weird mix of things. I was discussing this with Taylor last year and he mentioned that they're kind of, that, you know, what's going on there. You've got gay club music, you've got art rock, you've got prog, you've got some, it's weird that it all worked, but it did. And two tribes as a single for me is their absolute zenith it's yes it, when what i like looking back on this clip in particular is precisely that moment when holly johnson goes into the crowd and this music is out amongst the people if you like because the yeah. artiness of frankie morley's involvement it, it, it's never front and center it was always about extremely catchy songs and a confidence bordering on arrogance um yeah. but crucially the reason this record works in a way for me that is better than, say, Man at CNA by The Specials or Nina's 99 mm. Red Balloons, is because it actually sums up, and it did for me at the time, how exciting a nuclear war could be.
3: It, yes. it, it's a weird yeah. thing.
4: That year, I mean, we were, we were uh, you know, like a lot of families sort of slightly terrified of the whole thing. We had Atomcraft 9 Dank stickers in our car and we had CND posters yeah. up. My sister had that, you know, that Thatcher Reagan gone with the wind poster. Yes. Um, you know, pre-threads, this was the kind of height of my paranoia, but also my slight fascination with nuclear war. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and, 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 and you know, seeing mushroom cloud pictures was always a thrill, remains a thrill. And, and perhaps perhaps built that year in particular, 1984, because in February that year in Coventry, um, the four, the you know, the four minute warning siren was set off accidentally. Um, oh fuck it was, it was actually set off in Nuneaton, a place we call Treacle Town because everyone's so slow and thick there. But um, it was <laughs> it was set off by a copper who was showing somebody else how the system worked. And he sets it off really early in the morning. Now, I was only a little kid, but I remember lying in my bed, hearing it and knowing what it was and thinking sort of really palpably two thoughts. One, that I'd had a good innings, I was 12. But two, (laughs) that I hoped that before I was incinerated, I, I, I got to see the cloud. It was simultaneously something... Both sort of terrifying and intriguing. For a lot of us, little juvenile kids, we were both yeah. sort of horrified by nuclear war, but strangely curious to see what it had looked like. And, and yeah. you know, two tribes is thrilling. Not it's not a hectoring, preachy kind of. It, I know it's an anti-war no. song, but it, it mm. takes a sort of thrill in the nuclear age as well. That, that's really, really crucial to the way it works.
3: I mean, my memory of of these times. I think it was a year before. There was a park near to me on on Grandpa, and on one Sunday they had a, a CND demo there. Right. The two things I remember were there was this kind of like diorama in a domed glass case mm. and it was like a village kind of setting. You know, there was, a, there was a bit of a town over here and there was fields and there was sheep and all this kind of stuff. And right in the middle, it was like an arcade thing. It, there was a red button. And if you press the red button, the whole diorama turned round. And in the middle was a massive papier-mâché mushroom cloud. And then there was all (laughs) these models of sheep that had been, like, chopped up. And there was red paint coming off them. And everything was ruined and everything. It's like, oh, yeah, this is what happens. And it's like, (laughs) whoa, fucking hell. And the other thing I remember is uh, there was a a kind of like a uh, a jumble sale kind of element to it. I bought Hey Jude by the Beatles. Simply because uh, I was looking at it and some bloke, uh, some hippie bloke just pointed at it and go, oh, Revolution, that's a fucking brilliant song, buy it. Mm-hmm. And I did it, he was right. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes trust a hippie, I say.
5: <laughs> I bet that diorama opened the eyes of those people who thought that a nuclear war would sort of be all
3: right. Yeah, <laughs> definitely, yeah. I w- I'd love to know where that is now. That should be in the British Museum. But, yeah, I mean, you probably felt the same way as me. A nuclear war was nailed on going to happen. Mm. You see all these, you see the, all the newspaper articles yeah. now about millennials worried about not being able to buy their own house. It's like, oh, fuck off. <laughs> we were worried about pissing down our legs in the fucking high street. Yeah. And I'm to, to have sex with people for, for a rat to eat. And yeah, and we must point out that this is this episode of Top of the Mops is three months before Threads. Mm, so, you yeah. know, and we was and we were we were already shitting it about it. I mean, I, to be honest with you, I can't remember being that u- upset or frightened about threads. I was more watching it and going, yeah, that's that's what's going to happen because I'd watched all the documentaries and stuff. I was like everyone else, I was grimly fascinated by yeah. it. Yeah.
5: Yeah, it's like when I was at school, they took us into the TV room to watch uh that QED documentary. Yes, Luke on the eighth Kennedy. day. Yeah. yeah, Yeah. a guide to Armageddon. And it was basically, yes. it, it was sort of not really the school's business to do that, because it's not <laughs> no. really educational, because it, it's just saying, yeah. well, you know, you're fucked. Because mm. there's mm. no education. A good
3: life lesson, though.
5: Yeah, but you might as well have taught kids that, you know, what happens if a nuclear bomb goes off is, you know, like a... You know, a load of kangaroos fly up in the air, and uh, <laughs> yeah. everything turns into a custard because it makes no difference. You know, just yeah. what, what you can do is just going to sit there. Um Did learn that, unfortunately, if you see the cloud, um yeah. you're not going to get off lightly because if you're still around no. by the time that thing's gone up, uh mm. you, you haven't been vaporized, and thus it, it is rat munching time. Um, <laughs> yes. <laughs> And also that what it looks like is, uh, yeah, piss coming out of a lady's trouser bottom and a yeah. bloke in a bike up a tree, all charred.
3: Yes,
4: yeah. But I think I think Freds did change my idea. I'm, I'm not saying I was excited by nuclear war and I wanted it to happen, but it made mm. it a hell of a lot grimmer in a way um, than, yeah. than it had been before. And, but, and, you know, Frankie had made it sound exciting because two mm. tribes is is a succession of just thrilling moments. Uh, relax. Yeah. Relax is a club track, you know, and it's constructed yeah. around one really important moment, the jizz moment if you like. Um yeah. but this is more Isn't this everything. is more ro <laughs> But this is more this is more like rock and roll. It's constructed yeah. around a kind of series of moments. And you yeah. know, honestly yeah. Al, this was only like two days ago that I was watching this but those five chords that end this you know the five mm. sort of stabs it's just one of the most thrilling endings to a to a, to a pop record ever and really yeah. it just seems astonishing that a band like that occupied that that centrality to thing they were kind of the people's yeah. band and there was yeah. that summer where the Frankie Says t-shirts were just everywhere uh, 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 of... Frankie
3: Say oh shit sorry well, no, because you know,
5: Frankie man. Says was not covered by copyright. So if you got them off the ah, market, yeah. Yeah, it would. Yeah. So there were actually more Shit, Frankie, I Frankie like watch, Says yeah. than Frankie Says. Yeah, think right. but
3: that still fucking annoys me, man. <laughs> Sorry. Trivial
5: <laughs> Pursuit, Wendy Richard, Mary Hopkin, Chris Eubank, yeah. um, etc. Yeah. Should also yeah. put in a plug there for the new Half Man Off Biscuit album, seeing as it was them who... Uh, Alerted me to this rogue s <laughs> that wankers has mm. put on everything.
4: Yeah, but but no, yeah. I mean the the amount of bootleg t shirts to were is proof that just what an odd phenomenon Frank yeah. Frankie were. I mean, from here on in, the people's pop, if you like, the stuff that would be getting to the top of the charts would either be sort of balls achingly earnest or sort of lairily mm. legendary. You know, yeah. the, the sort of the sort of people's bands, if you like, Oasis and the like. I mean. Frankie even mm. though they were everywhere they never got tiresome for me in 84 and 85 and seeing no. them on telly seeing them on telly was always a, a total thrill they couldn't keep up the peaks that's the thing they were at in yeah. 84 and 85 afterwards but my god when you compare what came after with them that mass- the, the, the way it seems strange to say it about something that sold so much but i think frankie and one of the, the most majorly underrated bands in british pop yeah. history And they're not, you know, I can sort of clutch at straws and say the next band who were kind of, I don't know, working class, had that centrality to life, um, and were part of, you know, mainstream pop culture, would be, I don't know, something like Happy Mondays. But I'm clutching at straws, Frankie were the bomb, and and they blew my mind in 84 and 85.
3: This is how big Frankie Goes to Hollywood were in 1984. There There were two adverts that ended up in the latest pages of smash hits. Uh, the first one was uh, a picture of a girl in a uh, white t shirt, which says, Frankie says, uh, go and get your hair done at so and so and so I'll, 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 and so. And i Gerard's. And Gerard's, yeah.
5: That's how terrible my, or how perfect my terrible photographic memory for old Smash Hits really is.
3: There was also uh, an, an advert uh, in the property section of a local newspaper which goes like this. Two tribes could easily fit into this spacious home. Frankie Lee, the best. <laughs> Don't relax. Ring soul agents on whatever telephone number it is. That's how massive they were.
5: Yeah. Live in this house when you want to come.
3: <laughs> <You>
5: <laughs> but I, I agree with everything Neil said about Frankie. And uh, yeah, we were the same age and... I was equally into Frankie Goes to Hollywood at the time. Like, they were kind of the first current band mm. that I was really obsessed mm. with. Prior mm. to that, I'd only been mm. into old mm. groups. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, they were a modern group that sounded completely modern. Uh yeah. And, yeah, this is obviously the pinnacle of not just them, but of that particular kind of record production, mm. uh, yeah. as well as proof that to make a great record and a great number one... You don't need a great song. In fact, you don't even need a Mm. song because this isn't Mm. even a song. It's, as Neil says, it's a sequence of sound events uh, strung along a bass line, which is partly why it seemed so original at the time. I mean, above and beyond Trevor Orne's production. I mean, there were plenty of funk records before this which were equally Mm. sort of uh, disjointed and kind of anti-craftsman-like In terms of the song yeah. but yeah they weren't number one and it's an achievement yeah. in itself to cook up this broth of uh half-formed ideas and not only make it brilliant but make it irresistibly commercial mm. in a way that mm. you know no tune smith could ever hope to match uh yeah it's fantastic and this performance yeah. is great mm. as well um, aside yeah. from at the start, where he rips up a copy of The Sun, which might yes. seem like a very clever statement, but somebody's mum is going to have to sweep it <laughs> up, <all> right?
3: Yeah, so. <laughs> no, man. No, that, I, I heartily approved of that even then.
5: But it's so obvious that it's because they can't show the video. Yeah. So they've tried to make yeah. this look and feel yeah. as much like the video as possible. They got the, the, yeah. the sort of tannoy speakers slash. Uh, air raid siren. Yeah. Um, and yeah. the handheld newsreel camera on Holly Johnson. Mm, yeah. And the kids with yeah. flags yeah. Uh, support, yes. supporting America or Russia. It's like it's winking at something that everyone knew, which mm. is the video. Yeah. But it's like when they bleep a yeah. swear word, but everyone hears it in their head anyway. And that's what this yeah. is. It's like the two tribes video uh, bleeped. Uh, but it works yeah. brilliantly. Um, like. Most of the times when Top of the Pops tried to make an effort, yeah. right? Most of the time, you see a group on Top of the Pops, and the clip is so basic and filmed in such a slapdash way, you know, that when they mm. did a big production number, it does stand out and it does have that sense of occasion. Mm. Um, yeah, and this really works well. And it's in a way, it's a shame that the band have all swapped instruments mm. Mm. for a, yeah. a pissed giggle. Which kind of shows that after yeah. nine weeks they don't really give a toss <laughs> yeah. anymore. Uh, no, but you've still got Holly plugging away and giving the big performance like the old pro that he is. You know, he's fantastic. Yeah. Um,
4: he's so, such a good frontman. Yeah, Everything he, he does in this performance yes from the beginning through the bits with the audience well i love the kind of guy who looks like a phd maths lecturer kind of grimacing as the camera goes (laughs) past him and there's a genuine (laughs) sense that it's close to chaos when he's out in the audience it's it's kind of almost Mm. i also love the bit towards the end when he hooks his walking stick on the lighting rig and and i know these seem like little things but i think he's such a fantastic front man holly johnson
3: yeah, yeah,
5: and also just yeah. that leering expression on his mm. face the whole time. Um, he just constantly looks like he's out of his head on some weird chemical that straight people aren't taking yet. <laughs> um, yes. You know, just walking through an orgy, looking around and uh, deciding what he wants to do yeah. next. You know,
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think one of the great images of this video is is one of the zoo wankers. Uh, some girl just gurning away whilst waving a yeah, hammer and yeah, sickle. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, It's just amazingly uh, subversive since it's 1984. Yeah, yeah. And the only time we'll see the hammer and sickle on television tonight because they're oh, not in the Olympics. Yeah. 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 Cheat, really. but I mean, obviously we can't really touch too much on the video because we
4: don't see it here, but come on. Whose side were you on in that fight? Oh, uh, I hated Reagan, so I was on, I was on Chinelli's yeah.
5: side. I mean, it's terrible, really, isn't it? It's because he, he was less familiar. Um, yeah. And you, all, you sort of knew that Reagan was a cunt because mm. he was on telly every day being yeah, a cunt. Yeah, yeah. Yes, um, yes. this guy, you think, well, you know, maybe he just wants to re <laughs> <or> Yeah. <laughs>
3: and it's like, yeah. in fact, I... no,
5: no, it's like you will have electrodes on your bollocks if you say about this man, what, you say every day about Mm. Ronald Reagan. But yeah,
3: I was supporting him as well. I was fully on Chinenko's side in that fight because at the beginning he gives he gives Reagan the two fingers like a proper fucking like a proper (laughs) British person. Yeah. Yeah. He's one of us really
5: (laughs) but I do like this stupid and sensationalistic and sort of comical approach to political pop music, right? Because to be honest, the older I get the more I think that earnest attempts to mix pop and politics should be discouraged, right? I don't mean people Mm. singing about their personal experiences or their personal resentment of, you know, Mm. aspects of society. I mean pseudo-authoritative political broadsides of the, you know, walls-come-tumbling-down variety. Mm. Not just because most of them are worthless and, you know, excruciating, but because when they're good... I think they may be bad for people, right? And bad Mm. for the political climate and the general discourse. Because you can only fit so much actual information into a pop Mm. song. Mm. Whereas you can fit an awful lot of emotion in there. And that will always dominate. So the problem a lot of the time, including today with politics, is there's more emotion than information. So... A pop song is only ever going to reach the level of, you know, smash the Tories, right? But with 50 tonnes of highly persuasive emotion behind it. Now, it's not that I don't want to smash the Tories, but it's that Mm. what this does is politicise people to a certain point and then leave them high and dry, right? I'm freestyling here. It might be (laughs) bollocks, but you leave people feeling a lot without necessarily knowing much. And a little knowledge is a dangerous thing, Mm. you know? And... You look around now and there's so much political discussion happening on a, yeah. on that pop level, mm. right? And all you get is either smash the Tories or the reverse, right? And yeah. then you look at, well, what is supposed to be...
3: Well, people complain that there's not enough political stuff in music nowadays.
5: Yeah, but you've got a generation now who grew up with it, uh, Yeah, you know, who are now political journalists. And you look at people like Owen Jones and Brendan O'Neill... <laughs> and you know left and right and you just think like mm-hmm. this is kid stuff you know yeah. this is yeah. not author- this is not an expert well right this, is a, this is
3: what it boils down to nowadays isn't it the political journalism or political commentary in journalism is either you either have to say something so fucking obvious that, uh, that, that so people can agree with you and share it on facebook or essentially be grot bags <laughs> and, and 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 you know make you angry yeah, but I mean the uh, that that video, um, that recent video, "This Is America" by uh, Shaking Outcast or whatever he's <laughs> called. The, the reaction to that of people trying to work out what he was saying. I mean, that's the only political um, sort of stuff that that makes it nowadays. Something that's so oblique. Yeah. It wasn't even the
4: lyrical content people were talking about. It was about the video. For me, the political pop music that I've loved, um, including Two Tribes. It, it does two things. It doesn't tell me what to think necessarily. What it does, it gives me a thrill. First and foremost, it gives me a thrill. And secondly, it's confusing. You know, Public Enemy, those first three PE albums, they're, they're, they don't necessarily, yeah. although although they're kind of portrayed as kind of hectoring almost, they don't give you a serpentine message to take away with you. They're a, a kind of inferno no. of ideas. And, 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 and you come out yes. of it just kind of, you know, trembling with... with thrilling excitement that's what's so amazing about two tribes at no point really in two tribes i know one is all uh, a point is all that you can score there's no real condemnation going on and there's a faint there's a faint excitement or all that missile technology all that glistening hydraulics yes um, um, so so it has that confusing thing in there and i think that's why a bit of honest political confusion for me is is usually more thrilling than a kind of, you know, rather dull kind of, this is my political opinion, isn't it completely something that you cannot disagree with?
5: Yeah, what this record does is take geopolitics and drag it down to the level of pop music. Mm. Um, Mm. And, you know, I would say that it works because this kind of sparkling contempt and sparkling cynicism is something that pop music can teach you very well, Mm. um, Mm. uh, as opposed to something as complex and dry uh, as politics. So maybe this is healthier than the alternative. Mm. I'm not saying that I want a society where where everybody thinks of politics as boring and somebody else's business and is apathetic and doesn't get involved on any level. But, you know, maybe that's healthier than the alternative. No, it probably Mm. isn't.
3: (laughs) I mean, basically, the the, the overriding message from this song is we're fucked.
5: Yeah. So let's have a bum first is like the sort of the subtext. I I remember when I was 12, riding my bike around, 12, 11, whatever I was, when I think it was the Russians shot down a Korean Mm. passenger Mm. airline. And... You know, this was—I know now, looking back—this was never going to result in a third world war. But at the time, you thought maybe it would. Um, Yeah. And I remember riding my bike out uh, out in the street, and a plane went over, and I was looking up in the sky, going, "Oh, is that a plane? Or is that a missile?" (laughs) You know, as if maybe World War Three has started. And yeah, the trouble is about being twelve. It's a funny age because you're just sort of, you know, early puberty or at least on the cusp of it, and yeah what you're thinking is I don't wanna die a virgin, yeah that's what yes. I was thinking yeah but I was the like 12 Moell what are you situation do? it's like you know yeah. where's Michael Jackson? I don't know <laughs> what are you gonna do you you are kind of screwed there there's, <laughs> you, unfortunately there's not a solution yeah. to that mm. problem,
3: yeah, and there was just great art created by uh by as everyone being shit up by a nuclear war, you know we've got threads um. Yeah, countdown to Looking Glass. Uh, special bulletin. Uh, mm. One of my particular favourites. You know, it was, it was, it was going to happen for us, and then you know, bloody East Germany ruined it for everyone by wanting <laughs> to be free and, 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 and getting into the Scorpions. Don't worry. Bastards. In the same
5: way that I tell tell myself in middle age about a lot of things, it may not be too late.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's that amazing photograph, isn't there, of the day the Berlin Wall, well, the day after the Berlin Wall went down, of all these East Germans in a newsagent yeah. buying wank mags. Liberation. Yeah. What was the most popular uh, wank mag in East Germany? <laughs> Re-DDR's wives. you <laughs> oh, <laughs> know. So, the following week, Two Tribes was finally knocked off the top by Careless Whisper by George Michael. But it became the longest-running number one of the 1980s, selling over one and a half million copies. During its time at number one, it kept I Won't Let The Sun Go Down On Me by Nick Kershaw, Relax Again, and Hole In My Shoe by Neil off the number one spot. They did, uh, Frankie did an unofficial uh, Frankie Say t-shirt that said uh, Frankie Say We Fucked The Hippie, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) The follow-up, The Power of Love, made it to number one in December of this year, making Frankie the second band after Jerry and the Pacemakers to have their first three singles get to number one. But their only release of 1985, Welcome to the Pleasure Dome, was kept off number one by Easy Lover by Philip Bailey and Phil Collins. Diminishing returns set in and they split up in 1987. If only they'd have died at the end of nineteen eighty four, it would have been perfect.
4: The trouble is, Al, you know, with Frankie. Sorry, I know we want to move on, but they have. That it, it would. It seems they've had no palpable influence onwards on, on, no. on British pop, and and that's no. heartbreaking, really. You know, yeah. an awful lot of shitty bands have quite a big effect. Um, yeah. but Frankie, the spirit of them, the oddity of them, the thrill of them just mm. seems to have disappeared. It, it, it's yeah. disappeared because uh, essentially, you know, you could call this lad rock. It's labs yes, making music. Do you know what I mean? But yeah. now what lad rock means is plugging in vintage equipment, having a vintage haircut and trying to sound yeah. like it's do 1973. Proper music. Yeah. yeah. Um, whereas the possibilities that Frankie held up as to what could be done haven't mm. been followed up. Perhaps precisely because you can't follow them up because they're so unique. And and completely, you know, unfollowable because it was just unique to that band in that time.
3: And if you thought this conversation was deep and detailed, just wait till we get to the war song by Culture Club. (laughs)
2: tell you that next week it's the Batman and Robin of Radio 1. That's Andy Peebles and Steve Wright on Top of the Pops. We'll leave you with Rod Stewart. Some guys have all the luck. Good night. (laughs)
3: We've already covered Rod Stewart in chart music number 13, so we'll just say that this is his 28th Top 40 hit. It's the follow-up to Infatuation. we got to number 27 in June of this year, and it's a cover of the 1973 single by The Persuaders that had been heavily reinterpreted by Robert Palmer in 1980. And it's up this week from number 32 to number 25. It's a bit of a calm down, isn't it? Yeah. it oh, is. God, just a bit, yeah. <laughs>
4: Rod Stewart, or as I call him, or we call him around here anyway, uh, Rod. I think Enoch is the man. This country is overcrowded. The immigrants should be sent home. Stewart, did
5: he say that? <laughs> he did in
4: 1970. Oh right. So he's he managed to
5: that. to brush that one under the carpet in a way that yeah, Eric so he's Clapton got away with that in made. a
4: way that Clapton didn't. Yeah, yeah exactly. I mean, it's a long time ago, I guess. But uh, yeah. there you go. The persuaders version of this by the way is so good I love that version. It's brilliant as you'd, isn't as you'd it. Expect Same people
3: who it. did it's a thin line between oh, love and thin hate It's yeah? just
4: one of the greatest records. Ever, yes. isn't it? But I mean the only yeah. good thing about this version is is that in in the sort of pantheon of shite that Rod did in the 80s. No oh, yes is, this is not every beat of my heart which, oh, is, one no. the, which is one of the no. worst songs ever but it's still pretty grim.
3: I mean he'd just gone through a phase where he was looking like fucking Simon Lebond's dad arsing about on a ship with yeah, a fucking the, headband. The, and it's oh it's like...
5: Yeah, the Kenny Everett inflating arse. Yes, thing. Yeah, yeah. yes. But this can't be that terrible because it's a good song and he's still got a good voice. Yeah. So that's why it seems less shit than some of his <laughs> other records. Yeah. But it's still a disgrace because like, you know, yeah, the original is a lovely sort of soulful R&B record, although not one you would expect to be disinterred yeah. twice yeah. in the next 10 years but you know a good record of the type uh, of which there seems to be an unlimited supply mm. in the early 70s and then robert palmer's version is like 94% pure cocaine oh, yes it's like it's a, amazing a, isn't a, it yeah it's like a uh, an 80s-ified version of the Lindsay Buckingham songs on Tusk. Yeah. Like, yeah. really sort of hyped up and, and weird. And
4: bright and brittle. Uh, yeah. It's exactly mm-hmm. that. yeah.
5: But it's one of those weird little choices that Robert Palmer periodically would make in an otherwise flat career. Yeah. You know, like when he did that yodelling song. Yes. It's just sort of out of the blue. But then Rod comes along and he smooths it back out. Yeah. And he puts an iron on it and... By the time he's finished, you can see right through it like a 10-year-old hospital gown, you know. Yeah. And most of the charm has gone. So this isn't, like, a really bad record, like, unless you're allergic to this kind of top 40 AOR. Yeah. But it just shouldn't be here. Yeah. Or anywhere, yeah. you know.
3: Yeah, particularly after after the previous song we've had. Yeah. yeah. It's such a comedown. And, and what makes it worse Massive. is... That the, the zoo wankerage is at fucking maximum, isn't it?
4: There's a lot of zoo wankers out, but unlike previous. It's calmed episodes, down a bit, hasn't it? It has calmed down a bit, but the camera can't help but catch an awful lot of just normal yeah. people, which is nice. The zoo people do push themselves forward a yeah. little bit, but it does catch quite a lot of just normal punters, which is actually pretty rare for an eighties. There's that
3: couple who uh have got the kind of like arms around each other's waist and they're doing that synchronised side to side arse wiggling, which is just so fucking Brian Rogers connection but the thing that fucks me off about this song is Rod Stewart of all people moaning about other people getting lucky yeah, yeah. it's like <laughs> your ass has probably just stopped going up and down by about this point how much fucking shagging have you had mate and now you're moaning that oh some, so, so, some other people are having sex and not me for a change
5: this is like the, the incel Rod Stewart <laughs> Yeah, I mean, one day we'll have a, <laughs> a peak period Rod Stewart record yeah, here, and yeah. I'll save my kind yeah. words for then. Yes, but yes, yes. At yes. this point, he's a, mm. a stuffed panther on a plinth, and the trouble is, from now on, it's like in the same way that he only fancied one very specific type of woman, he mm-hmm. only made one very specific type of record, you know, mm. like, pleasant mm. enough, but very bland.
4: The, the thing is, you, what you said, Al, there should be nothing after no, the vibes on this episode. There shouldn't be anything because the the trouble is this awful record's playing and all the audience have still got their Russia and yes. US flags. Yes, they won't up with it, are they? Yeah, and and but but the whole—I'm not saying the significance of it is neutered, but just the thrill of all of that uh, just evaporates yeah. immediately, yeah. and 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 it almost starts to taint what exactly, before. yeah. Um, so the whole episode, you know, those—I la- I, I said it before, but those last five stabs of two yeah. tribes—that should have yeah. been the moment where the BBC logo comes up and it fades into whatever's coming next. Well, if if they'd have been
3: able to run the video, that's probably exactly what they would have done. Yeah particularly as the world blows up. they could have done something with a BBC logo, like the goodies (laughs) did. But I mean, it's still still very jarring to see people in 1984 on one of the biggest TV programmes waving the hammer and sickle about. It would be like people waving an ISIS flag on Sounds Like (laughs) Friday Night or something, wouldn't it?
4: The thing I have to remind myself with, uh, with rod because there's so much 80s material mm. and the 80s singles because unfortunately my, my child won't let me listen to anything other than free radio 80s in the car mm. it, all i hear is rod 80s stuff i, I do have to oh it's awful remind myself isn't it of, yeah i mean i do have to remind myself of just what amazing beautiful records things like maggie may and, and you, uh, you know you were well yeah but yeah And you wear it well, yeah,
3: of course. Yeah. So, the following week, some guys have all the luck, jumped five places to number 20 and eventually got to number 15. The follow-up, Trouble, only got to number 95 in December of this year and he'd have to wait until July of 1986 for his next big hit. (sighs) Every beat of my heart.
4: (sighs) I'm alone in the dark! It's that bit in that fucking record. He he shouts, I'm lost and alone in the dark. He stops singing, shouts it. I wanna fucking punch the radio every time I hear it. Yeah. Well well the, the jarring
3: thing about that record is is when he goes on about Babylon <laughs> The rod of correction. <laughs> so what's on the telly afterwards well BBC One piles straight into the episode of Heidi High where Maplins is infested with chads until Ted Bovis lies his ass off about Fred Quilly's war record over the tannoy and gets everyone to clean them up fucking classic episode I love Heidi High
5: what no laughs
3: followed by the documentary series The Paras, The Nine O'Clock News, then it's back to Olympic grandstand for the synchronised swimming, then the Carla Lane sitcom Solo, and then back to Los Angeles to see Daley Thompson smashing it in the decathlon. BBC Two is running Hearty Goes to Hollywood. See? See what they did there? Where Russell Hearty catches up with the fit, the fanatical and the freaky. Then the Tony Lo Bianco film The Last Tenant, highlights from the cricket, the final instalment of Apocalypse, where Billy Graham bangs on about the Four Horsemen for 10 minutes, then Newsnight, and then finishes off with the John Belushi film Old Boyfriends. ITV gets round to the female sitcom Poor Little Rich Girls, the documentary Cuba Twenty-Five Years of Revolution, then the News at ten and the Jane Fonda and John Voigt post-Vietnam romance film Coming Home. Channel 4 is broadcasting Looks Familiar with Dennis Norden, Anna Neagle and Larry Grayson, followed by Soap, the Irish RM and finishes with a disabled documentary series, When the World Changed. Fucking that's a bit heavy manners on the telly tonight, isn't it? So, me boys, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow?
4: Uh, Frankie. Mm. Frankie, all, all morning. It, I mean, what a thrilling performance. And I'll probably also be talking about the Laura Branigan video. Mm.
5: Yeah, I think um, I think the... Outrageously incongruous imagery of the Laura Branigan video may have washed over me at the mm. time, but yeah, Frankie. Even after
3: all these weeks, mm. and what are we buying on Saturday? Because there is bound to be another Frankie twelve-inch remix out.
4: Well, I'd get that. I'd probably get the Laura Branigan actually. Mm. Um, if I mean, if yeah, and um, and also Windjammer. You mustn't forget Windjammer. No. That's a great record.
3: No.
5: Yeah, nowadays, Windjammer, Laura Branigan, Hazel Dean probably would already have bought Frankie. Um, Although with that, whenever a hit has that sort of lifespan, I know they padded it out with 12 inches and stuff, but there's Mm. other records that have done that too. You do wonder who buys it in the ninth week at
3: number one. Yeah. (laughs) Well,
5: I've been umming and ahhing about this record. Yeah. But I think I quite like it.
3: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and what does this episode tell us about the summer of '84?
4: Well, you know, in a pop sense, I think we've previously traced a kind of deterioration, a deterioration from '83 onwards. Yes, and, and you know, towards Live Aid. But actually, I was really pleasantly surprised by this episode. Mm. There's an interesting little moment being charted here, where American singers are being influenced by Europe, where underground kind of dance cultures like high energy. Are getting straight right you know near the top of the charts and and you know where're Frankie happening fundamentally perhaps perhaps the last interesting massive thing to happen mm. in British pop music of the eighties mm.
5: yeah i'm I mean I was there and not only do I not remember seeing this particular top of the pops may have been on mm. summer holidays or something where you wouldn't have a telly uh, mm. <laughs> but it seems quite different from the way I remember top of the pops in 1984 a lot more effort gone into the sets and the presentation yeah Uh, sense of a bigger budget slightly less of an American obsession uh, yeah and a a lot more enjoyable but I think the lack of coherence tells us something about the instability of pop music at this point but Mm. uh it's yeah for the better I think Mm.
3: So that brings us to the end of this episode of Chart Music. All that remains now is for me to give out the usual flange, which is there's our website, www.chart-music.co.uk. You can join us on Facebook, facebook.com slash podcast. You can get involved with us at Twitter at Chart Music, T-O-T-P, and you can give us some dollar at patreon.com slash Chart music. Thank you very much, Neil Kokone. No, where is Al? Oh, good on you, Taylor Parks. Yes, goodbye. My name is Al Needham, and mine is the last voice you will ever hear. On on this podcast. <laughs> Apart from Chris Needham. <laughs> and whoever else I bung on going at the end. Yeah. Shut Taylor, I'm the last voice I'll ever hear. <laughs>
1: sharp music
0: when you take cover in your inner refuge you must not go outside until it is absolutely safe and if the fallout is heavy you may be in your refuge for quite a long time. Although the danger from fallout will get less and less as time goes by, you will never be able to judge for yourself how bad it is. Advice will be given to you on the radio, so keep listening.
5: Standby for blasting, Judas Priest straight in at...
0: This advice over the radio and other instructions and news will be very important to you while you're cut off from the people living around.
5: and that remains at number 20, not a good week for Roxy Music, Down eight places too. Number 19.
0: So make sure your radio is in good working order. And if you have a spare radio, keep it in your fallout room. At six this week, Gary Newman, I die, you die.